Hello, everyone. Good morning, good night, um, good day, wherever you're following us from. Um, today is the seventh day of the grand jury investigation. So we are um, today looking at a very important aspect of what has happened in the last two years, and that's psychology and propaganda. But to start and to sum up what has happened before on day six, I pass over to a judge, uh, Rui de uh, Castro. Thank you, Vivian. The members of this model grand jury investigation has been reviewing the testimonies given to it by all the experts. The preliminary conclusion that is has been that is as reached with respect to the issue at hand, the Corona crisis, is that there is very strong evidence showing that what the world has been experiencing for more than two years now is the result of a long planned agenda designed by a group of a small group of people. These people are following in the footsteps of those people and the institutions who have been pursuing ideas of world control and eugenics for more than a century. These people and their institutions, global corporations and global NGOs, seem to have played a crucial role in World Wars I and II, using their financial system to finance both sides of both wars. The ultimate goal is that this is what of all of the evidence points to, is to create so much chaos and ultimately the world's population will give in to the demands of introducing a one world government under their control and a digital currency issued by a one world bank under their control. The testimony from, among others, former WHO employees and advisors shows, in addition, that these people and institutions are using health to speed up their efforts of gaining control over the world's population by using the WHO as a crowbar. The WHO, however, is an undemocratic organization without any democratically elected officials who are accountable to no one but their private bankers. The most influential of these bankers is Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, who is the chief protagonist of the ongoing campaign to inject the entire, the entire world's population with experimental new drugs, which they falsely claim are vaccines. As the testimony of the experts that this panel as the testimony of the experts that this panel has listened to shows these experimental shots would if even if they could be qualified as vaccines which they cannot not be necessary, the reason for this being, even though the preponderance of the evidence shows that COVID-19 was man-made and is a result of so-called gain-of-function experiments, it's turned out to be no, no more dangerous than the common flu. It has a survival rate of 99.997% and an infection, infection fatality rate of between 14 and 15 percent, which is about the same as of the common flu. On top of this, the injections are neither safe, not sa nor safer, but rather extremely dangerous. 
In view of these preliminary results of this modern grand jury investigation, the panel has decided to take another closer look at the circumstances apart from bribery and extortion, which, which made it possible for the people and institutions who are the driving force behind the pandemic. The most important elements of the crimes that have been committed on a very grand scale in our view are the, psycholo the psycho psycholo psychological warfare that has been waged on the world's population to manipulate them into obedience. The media, which were used to convey a constant message of fear and panic, and PCR tests, which has used to which was used to artificially create cases when none existed, which was the sole and only basis for the declaration of a public health emergency for international concern, whose acronym is pronounced FAKE, and which ultimately, as a fake emer a medical emergency, provided bias for corona measures, in particular, the injections of billions of people with highly dangerous experimental substances. The three experts whose testimony in this panel is seeking in order to shed more light on these aspects are Professor Matthias Desmet of Ghent University in Belgium, who is recognized as the world's leading expert on the theory of mass formation as it applies to COVID-19. Professor Mark Crispin Miller, who is a professor of media studies at New York University and one of the world's leading authority in this field. And Professor Ulrich Kammerer of Würzburg University, a professor of human bio biology, immunology and cellular biology, who together with Dr. Mike Eden, former vice president, president of of Pfizer and Dr. Roger Hodkinson, a medical doctor and PCR test maker from Canada. This is one of the leading aspect, uh, experts on PCR testing. Due to time constraints, the hearing of Professor Desmet had to be pre-recorded, but Professor Miller and Professor Kammerer will testify live before this panel. Now I give the floor to the panel. Thank you. Thank you, Judge. Thank you. I'm Anna Garner from an attorney. Uh, I'm an attorney in the United States, and it's my pleasure uh, to welcome you, Court of Public Opinion, to this show, and also to call our first witness, who has been pre-recorded, Professor Matthias Desmet. Is it Doctor or Professor? What should we call you? Uh, you can choose, Anna, because I'm a professor and a doctor. Okay, all right. Uh, <laughs> all right, then, uh, Dr. Desmet, would you tell uh, the audience a little bit about your background and why you're qualified to give the testimony that you're going to give? Yes, well, I'm a clinical psychologist. I received a PhD in clinical psychology at Ghent University, and I work there as a professor in clinical psychology. I um, also have a master degree in statistics but uh, i don't call myself a statistician because uh, i'm no longer involved in a statistical research actually uh, but i've been involved in it for five years and then i have a master degree in statistics uh wait uh, then i well i have uh, about 
120 publications on a web of science. Um, these publications all focus on uh, the effect of interpersonal relationships on um, personality and individual psychological functioning. Um, I uh, lecture on the phenomenon of uh, mass formation for several years now. Um, I will be completely honest. I have no, um, I have, I, I just finished one book on the phenomenon of mass formation and uh, relationship with uh, the phenomenon of totalitarianism. But before that, I only investigated the basic psychological mechanisms involved in mass formation. Uh, so like, as I just said, the impact of uh, all uh, interpersonal contexts on individual psychological functioning, but not the phenomenon of mass formation itself. So my, the book that I just finished is my first publication that really focuses on the phenomenon of mass formation itself. Um, well, I guess that's about it. For the audience, can you define what mass formation means? Mass formation is a specific kind of group formation, which has a very specific impact on individuals. Individuals who are in the grip of a process of mass formation show very specific characteristics. This has been described by uh, numerous scholars, uh, ranging from Gustave Le Bon, Sigmund Freud, Elias Carnetti, McDougall, Hannah Arendt, uh, and so on. Uh, they all described um, the very strange, profound impact <clears throat> mass formation has on individual psychological functioning. In the first place, people, an individual that is in the grip of a process of mass formation becomes radically blind to everything um, that um, goes against uh, what it believes in. So people in a process of mass formation typically believe in certain ideologically colored narratives and in a strange way they become unable to to take a critical distance and to see uh, when these narratives become utterly absurd um, or just wrong and that's the first very specific characteristic history is full of examples of that of the extreme blindness um, of individuals who are in a process of mass formation. And a second characteristic, for instance, is that people who are in the grip of mass formation, they uh, become, they are, are typically willing to sacrifice everything that is important to them. It's very strange. They seem to have lost all awareness of their individual interests and they are prepared to, to sacrifice everything. Uh, that that used to be important for them, their health, their wealth, the future of the of the children, their life, and so on. Extremely strange. The third characteristic, very important, is that people who are in the process of mass formation become radically intolerant for dissonant voices. So they um, and they typically tend to first to stigmatize the people who um, do not go along with the masses, who do not buy into the narrative. Uh, they, in a second step, they typically give a sign to the people who do not go along with the masses. And in a third step, they think they uh, become cruel to the people who do not go along with the masses. And they typically, that's really characteristic for mass formation. 
they typically do so, they become cruel, as if it is an ethical duty. That's extremely typical for mass formation, whether it, we are talking about the Crusades or the witch hunts or the French Revolution or um, uh, the large-scale mass formations of the Soviet Union or Nazi Germany. Every time again, we see the same characteristic. People become radically intolerant and then at a later stage, they typically become cruel to the people who do not go along with the masses. That's one thing. And then the from a psychological point of view, the most characteristic thing is that they do so as if it is an ethical duty, even when the cruelty is committed on people whom they deeply loved before the mass formation. For instance, I talked to a woman, Sharif Ishtali, uh, five weeks ago, I think. The conversation is available on the internet. A, a woman who um, was in Iran, who lived in Iran, during the uh, revolution in Iran in 1979, I think. And the revolution in Iran um, was the beginning of a large-scale mass formation in Iran, uh, and, um, and which also led to the emergence of a totalitarian regime. Uh, not a technocratic regime, as not a technocratic totalitarianism, which we see now, a different, different time, type of totalitarianism, but it led to the emergence of a totalitarian state in Iran. And uh, this woman described how she, she, she witnessed with her own eyes how a mother reported her son to the state and how she put the rope around the neck of her son before he was hung. And that's typical for mass. And she, um, she asked, she wanted to be recognized as a heroine for doing so. That's so. That, that's what we are seeing time and time again in all mass formation. That people become radically intolerant for everyone who goes against the narrative, and they consider it an ethical duty to to uh, to eliminate in a final stage the people who do not go along with the masses. And once you understand the details of the psychological mechanism as I describe it in my book, for instance, on uh, the psychology of totalitarianism. Once you understand it, it's you, you really understand why uh, this happens in a mass. It's a very logical process, uh, which leads to this extremely strange, baffling, mind-boggling um, psychological phenomena at the individual level. Is it, is it Matthias, is it so that um, this may happen all by itself? It may evolve out of uh, simply people, large groups of people coming together and then um, maybe inadvertently someone uh, showing a certain course that they should take and then everyone follows? Is that one way that it can happen? And, but, but, but uh, to, uh, look at what we're seeing right now, I get the impression that what uh, we are experiencing is the result of a of long planning, long and detailed planning. So there, if there is such a thing as a, um, as a natural kind of mass formation, because large groups, groups of people tend to eventually follow one direction that someone uh, maybe inadvertently uh, tells them to take, but there's also apparently um, 
a way, a method by which mass formation can be actively um, can be actively uh, instigated, controlled, and people can be actively manipulated through mass formation. On top of this comes probably our new technolo technological um, uh, means that we now have at our disposal. Is, is that correct? Is it possible to manipulate people into that kind of mind frame? Yes, it's possible. Uh, historical examples uh, show that both uh, scenarios, that, that, that that both mass formation can happen in a spontaneous way or that it can be artificially provoked. The, the mass phenomena that uh, emerge in a completely spontaneous way are usually examples of mass hysteria. So like the dancing plague in uh, Strasbourg in uh, the 16th century uh, emerged completely spontaneously. So people just started to dance uh, until they died uh, for weeks in a row and nobody knew why. Uh, there was no nobody who who manipulated them or something. They started to dance. Uh, more and more people um, joined them, and they continued dancing until several of them uh, collapsed and died. Or, or, or yes. So it's possible. That's a, that's a mass hysteria. We usually call that a mass hysteria. Um, uh, and but just the mass formation. Um, in general, not only mass hysteria, sometimes the so sometimes the first stage of mass formation. Uh, so there are different scenarios. So sometimes, so you, you usually we have to distinguish between the population, the mass itself, the crowd, and then a certain elite which uh, leads the mass. And some and some historical examples, um, the elite emerged first and then created uh, the, the mass or the crowd artificially. Uh, that happened in the Soviet Union, for instance. In the Soviet Union, there was first a communist elite, um, people who were fanatically convinced of a certain ideology, uh, the Marxist ideology, the materialist, uh, historical materialism, uh, and who then um, first used small-scale propaganda and doctrination and slowly succeeded in creating a mass movement in, uh, in Russia. So usually uh, we think, or the historians usually think that this is how the mass phenomena in uh, the Soviet Union emerged. While in, for instance, in Nazi Germany, it seemed to have happened rather the other way around. First, there was a mass movement, and then slowly there were some people, talented, uh, uh, people who, who, who just uh, um, emerged from the mass and took the lead and with the help of the mass succeeded in um, taking control over the state system. And that was, that's always the beginning of a, of a totalitarian system. Uh, and, um, but it can happen in two ways. The, yeah, well, and, and together with, with, um, Throughout the last century, we actually see that, um, in gen generally speaking, if we do not limit ourselves to just uh, the study of totalitarian regimes, we see that governments and the elite uh, become, that is a smaller and smaller elite 
has more and more means at its disposal to have an impact or to influence, to manipulate under certain conditions, um, the mental state of the population. So that throughout the last two or three centuries, um, because of the technological developments and um, the emergence of the mass media, uh, a smaller and smaller group of people has more and more impact on the mental state of the population through all kinds of, uh, uh, in all kinds of ways, indoctrination, propaganda, but also the more subtle, subtle uh, velvet glove techniques, such as commercials or uh, all kinds of um, advertisement and so on. So, um, and what we, I think, yeah, um, that of course, that that's necessary actually, if a mass formation emerges, be it spontaneously or be it artificially created or provoked, but if a mass formation emerges in a society, it won't last very long unless it is fed and uh, stimulated uh, through narratives that are distributed through mass media. So that usually uh, scholars who write on mass formation usually agree that mass media are necessary for large-scale mass formation to continue for a long time. Um, and that's probably one of the reasons why uh, throughout the, the last three centuries, uh, the phenomenon of mass formation becomes stronger and stronger and stronger and lasts longer and longer and longer. And on the one hand, that's probably due to the fact that uh, the mass media and uh, mass communication uh, machinery uh, is becoming more and more sophisticated. On the other hand, it's clear that uh, no mass formation can continue or can be provoked unless the population is in a specific state. And the, the, the most central condition, the most crucial condition uh, of this psychological state that is needed to create a mass formation is always loneliness. So many people have to be in a, lone, in a state of loneliness, people, uh, an individual uh, becomes more sensitive and more vulnerable for mass formation when it is uh, disconnected from its natural and its social environment, when it stopped resonating with its natural and social environment. That's uh, Hannah Arendt uh, and uh, scholars from the Frankfurter Schule call that a state of social atomization. People have to be atomized, have to be uh, disconnected from the natural and social environment. And it and that, that as soon as a totalitarian state emerges, it will usually actively start to isolate people even more. So that's something very typical. Totalitarian leaders do that in an almost intuitive way. Stalin did it in a very conscious way. He was aware of what he was doing. He, he knew that the more people were isolated, uh, the more they felt powerless and passive uh, and obedient. The more they felt powerless in the confrontation with the, 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 the totalitarian state itself. But sometimes, like Hitler 
never pursue this in, a, in an active way or in a conscious way, and then the same happens, because that's a strange thing. The phenomenon of mass formation, and I can explain it if you want, but the phenomenon of mass formation always leads to the destruction of the ties and the bonds, the social bonds between individuals. So that's extremely important. So whether it is consciously created or not, it will happen in a, in a mass formation. And in a mass formation, we always see the same. And that's why totalitarian states typically lead to a paranoid atmosphere uh, 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 in the population. So people, um, the social bonds are deteriorate so much that people are willing to report themselves to, to report each other, even their even their family members, even their sons and their daughters, as I, as I just illustrated, um, when they do not follow uh, the narrative um, strict strictly enough. So um, I don't know if, if you guys want to talk about uh, the the mechanism of mass formation or not. Uh, Please tell me, uh, I, I can go a little bit, uh, I can explain a little bit further why this happens in a mass formation. Uh, but, but the most important thing to answer your question, uh, Dr. Fulmi, is that, um, that um, it can, the beginning of the process of mass formation can, well, it can be, it can first, first a mass, the crowd can emerge in a more or less spontaneous way. Uh, but if there are no leaders or no people, who feed the process of mass formation and who, who um, distributes uh, a specific the, the narrative that leads to the mass formation uh, to, through the mass media, then uh, uh, the, the process of mass formation usually will not last very long. Mm -hmm. I would like to ask <clears throat> so, um, a question. So basically, the the structure that we saw that was in, introduced through the, the by the measures, like saying that you have um, you keep social distance and you cannot visit your grandpa even if he's uh, very sick and you must be afraid of everyone who could touch you because they might spread the virus on you and all the other things that we see are basically um, both kind of the result and also uh, is uh, like a. Um, a good ground to feed more into this, um, you know, dynamic of the mass formation, because it's it's a, a good good um, you know growing field basically that more and more. So it's like a like a perpetual mobile or like a dynamic process that's that spirals into that. Uh, I mean, can you can you confirm that? And my other question is. Can we see um, what, what's the what does the dissonant voice is that still heard or how important is that in the in the whole procedure? Yes. Yes. Um, well, maybe I will, in a very concise way, in a nutshell, explain the mechanism of mass formation because it will make things much easier. So I, I described already that. Uh, the most crucial condition, precondition for mass formation to emerge is the is social loneliness. And so people, many people, a certain percentage of the people has to feel uh, disconnected from the social and natural environment. And then when people are in this lonely state, they typically experience lack of meaning making. That's typical. That's only logical if you consider it from a psychological point of view. I won't go into detail about that, but it's logical. Once people feel socially isolated, they will typically be confronted with a lack of meaning making. And then once they feel isolated and 
confronted with experiences of, of, of meaninglessness of life, they will typically, their emotions will disconnect from reality and from the environment. And that's what we call people develop free-floating anxiety, frustration, aggression. So they are confronted with anxiety, frustration, frustration and aggression uh, uh, while not knowing what they feel anxious for, what they feel frustrated for, and what they feel aggressive for. So all these negative effects and emotions are freely floating in their mental atmosphere. And um, under these conditions, well, it's, it's very easy. A mass formation easily emer emerges under these conditions. The only thing that has to happen is the following. If a narrative is distributed through the mass, through the mass media and the entire population, indicating an object of anxiety and the strategy to deal with that object of anxiety, then all this free-floating anxiety connects to uh, the object of anxiety and people are willing to participate in a strategy to deal with the object of anxiety just because it gives them an illusion of mental control, of, con of control over their anxiety. And uh, they will be willing to participate in the strategy to deal with the object of anxiety, no matter how absurd uh, the narrative or the strategy is. So that's very typical. And that, that, that is what happens in the beginning of every process of mass formation. Uh, whether it, we are talking about the Crusades, that the object of anxiety was the Muslims who, um, who, uh, who, uh, who uh, occupied Jerusalem or, or the Holy, the Holy uh, Grave, and then, or whether it, it is about the witch hunts, in that case, the object of anxiety or the witches, or whether it is the French Revolution, where the object of anxiety was uh, the, 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 the Ancien Regime, or whether it was the Jews in Nazi Germany or the aristocracy and the Soviet Union is always the same. First, someone indicates an object of anxiety, all the anxiety connects to that object, and then all the free-floating anxiety is connected to an object, and people participate in a strategy uh, to, 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 to uh, deal with the object of anxiety, and in that way, they also can direct all their free-floating frustration and aggression at an object. So uh, that's the first important psychological step. Uh, the first important psychological advantage, people can satisfy all their frustration and aggression and all their anxiety is now controllable, connected to an object of anxiety. And then in a second step, something more important happens in a second step, because many people at the same time participate in a strategy to deal with the object of anxiety, people feel connected again. They do not feel lonely anymore. They feel connected again, but the most important thing is this. The connection that emerges in a mass or the new social bond in a mass is never a social bond between individuals. That's something that was very well described by Sigmund Freud, for instance, in, his, in one of his contributions to mass psychology, but also by McDougall Canetti, Hannah Arendt, they all describe the same, uh, actually. Namely, that the, the new bond, social bond, is never, the, 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 a mass or a crowd is a group that is not formed because the individuals have a strong social bond with each other. To put it in simple words, because the individuals love each other, no. A group, a mass as a group is formed because all individuals experience a very strong solidarity with the collective and the group identity, the group bond becomes so strong that it sucks all the energy away 
from the, from the bonds between individuals. The bond, the social bond, the connection between the individuals deteriorates more and more and more the longer the mass formation exists. That, that's why there is this paranoid atmosphere where people don't trust each other anymore uh, in every totalitarian state and every mass formation. And actually in every group with a very, very strong group identity and a weak uh, uh, bond between the individuals. So, but, and that's indeed why, first and for all, that's one reason why, as you said, Vivian, um, mass formation is, emerges because many people feel lonely, feel isolated, feel disconnected. Isolated is not the right word, but feel disconnected and lonely. But the mass formation itself creates even more loneliness and even more disconnection. And that's the reason why the one mass formation usually leads to a second one. And we've noticed this now a little bit, while the corona narrative disappeared a little bit into the background during the last months, we immediately saw the emergence of actually a new narrative, which led to a new mass formation, the war in Ukraine and Russia. I don't say that Russia is the, the good or, or the other one the bad. No, I just say that this narrative on the Ukraine war typically created or continued the same dynamic that existed already in the corona crisis. There was a new object of anxiety, there was a new intolerance to a, to a dissonant voice and so on. So in the, on the one hand, I can it's just clear that uh, mass formation usually, even spontaneously, leads to a new mass formation. There is, when, if once a large-scale phenomenon of mass formation emerges, it doesn't stop easily anymore. It usually prepares the soil or the ground for a new mass formation. But, and that's, there is an additional factor that um, uh, contributes to this, to the fact that mass formation usually continues itself. And that is that once a mass formation emerges, the leaders of the masses usually also will actively try to isolate the individuals. And that's where that's what Hannah Arendt calls isolation in contrast with loneliness. A lonely population is a population that just feels disconnected. An isolated population is a population where people are no longer allowed to gather with many people at the same time. So like the first step in, uh, in totalitarianism usually is that the state limits uh, uh, the freedom to travel, for instance. Very often you see that, definitely in the Soviet Union and in Nazi Germany as well, I think. That's that's something that is described by Mirlo in his book, uh, Rape of the Mind. Um, that's one of the first steps usually. It was written in 1976. What I tell now, some, some people think that I invent this big, uh, 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 in trying to apply my theory on mass formation to the corona crisis, but that's nonsense because uh, I can... Uh, show you several books written in 1950, 1960, who all describe the same phenomena. The first step, the first thing, at, uh, 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 an emerging totalitarianism. We are not talking about a full-fledged totalitarian state now, but emerging totalitarianism in one way or another, consciously or intuitively, there are examples of both, will usually have this 
inclination is tendency to start to isolate the population. And that's probably because either intuitively or consciously, the leaders of the masses know that uh, the more people feel disconnected from each other, the stronger their connection will become with the collective. And thus, the phenomenon of mass formation will be strengthened time and time again, uh, the more uh, the, the, the leaders succeed in isolating the population. But even, and that's crucial as well, even if there is no isolation at all, the bonds between the individuals will spontaneously become weaker in a mass. Spontaneously. Like, um, so it's like very often we see a complex mixture between uh, an isolation that is artificially created and a state of, 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 of disconnectedness, which typically becomes increasingly uh, uh, intense throughout the mass formation. I will give you an example. Throughout the last two years, students uh, and professors and assistants at university were no longer allowed to come to university. They had, they had to have a good reason to be physically present in the buildings of the university. So students were uh, forced to follow uh, uh, the lectures at home online. And during the corona crisis, throughout the last two years, students were complaining. They were complaining that they felt lonely and so on. But at the same time, since two months, both uh, the personnel of the, at university and the students are allowed again to come to university. And what do we see? They just don't come anymore. Only 5% of them shows up. And now we have a problem. Even, and, and also the personnel stays at home. So that's the strange thing. While being in a mass formation, people spontaneously lose their capacity to connect with other people. Because connecting with other people, always you always need a little bit of psychological energy. Connecting to other people at the same time is very satisfying. Seeing people in the real world is very satisfying and it's crucial for a human being. But at the same time, we have to overcome a certain resistance because we are always a little bit nervous, a little bit ashamed. We have to, uh, to, 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 we have to overcome all kinds of resistances. For some people, small resistances. For other people, uh, larger re resistances. But connecting to other people in the real world is something that is, as I said, very satisfying. But it's also something that uh, asks a certain commitment and, and for which, for what you need a certain energy, psychological energy. And that that's capacity to connect is spontaneously, spontaneously destroyed in, uh, when a mass emerges. And that's why after a mass, we are really prone, we are very, very vulnerable, vulnerable for a new mass. That's so striking, like during the crisis, people were talking, everyone was full of solidarity um, and people were talking about solidarity and citizenship all the time, but at the same time, they accepted that if someone got an accident on the street, they were no longer allowed to help that person unless they, by accident, had uh, uh, surgical gloves and, and, uh, and masks at their disposal, which nobody has. So they were simply no longer allowed to help each other when someone got an accident. And similarly, um, People who 
when 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 your father or your mother people were talking all the time about solidarity with the elderly but they accepted that when their father or their mother was dying they were no longer allowed to be there and to visit them <laughs> so that's a strange thing that makes it clear people in a, in a mass or in a crowd typically think that they show solidarity and citizenship but the solidarity is never a solidarity with other individuals it's a solidarity with the collective and that's why the totalitarian state feels and knows that it can ask everything and that it can expect that individuals will report everyone even their loved ones to the state will put them to death if necessary when they do not show enough so enough solidarity with the collective <laughs> that's the point um, and that's what we are we, ha we have been witnessing now both processes happen at the same time there is this spontaneous automatic deterioration of the bonds between individuals which is re reinforced or strengthened usually by active attempts of the leaders of the masses to isolate the population um to pick up uh, um at um where vivian left off it seems to me that different societies react differently to this phenomenon of mass formation example um when here in the United States on March, on April the 18th, the mass mandates, federal mass mandates were um, uh, outlawed because a federal court in Florida said, you do not have the authority, CDC, to do this. Um, we could see people dancing. This was especially important on the planes, of course, planes, trains, um, uh, train station, train stations and airports. But you could actually see videos of people dancing on their in their planes, on their planes, um, including the uh, flight attendants and even pilots. And even after that, it was very obvious that I would I would say roughly 90% of the people were not wearing masks anymore. There's maybe 10%, maybe 15, but at the most. If you look at Germany, in contrast, completely different picture. You don't have to wear masks anymore if you want to go to the supermarket, but still 70%, maybe more of the people continue to wear these uh, face masks. Um, I think from what we have learned through the hearings of this um, grand jury investigation, this is man-made. Just like with the virus, this is not a spont spontaneous thing that naturally evolved, it is man-made. And from all the evidence that we've seen, just this morning, Vivian sent me a, um, a paper that um, shows that the people who are behind this, the people who are concretely writing what we call the panic paper and the panic paper doesn't just exist in Germany it is almost verbatim the same kind of instruction for the administration to get how, how to put people into panic mode almost verbatim the same verbatim the same all over the world the people who are behind this are have been doing this have been planning for this for a long time somehow they do not seem to be able to take all of these little things which I think are really important into consideration. For example, it doesn't work as well in the United States. It works much better in because this is a, a society that uh, values the individual. It works very well 
in societies like China, of course, and it also works pretty well in our Western societies in Western Europe because we've been, especially in Germany, uh, we have uh, we've been conditioned to be obedient, to be authority minded. Um, do you think that it makes a difference where the dissonant voices make themselves heard? Do you think it is more effective to have dissonant voices in countries like the United States than it is in China or in, in Europe? Yes, there definitely are cultural differences, both in the susceptibility or the vulnerability of uh, the population for mass formation. Mass formation or totalitarianism is an extreme type of collectivism. Uh, but, it, but I think I think it's very unpredictable, actually, uh, where the phenomenon of mass formation will, will be intense and where it, it won't be intense. Because sometimes, what we sometimes see is that in some individualist cultures, people become sick of their individualism. They come like it's a it's a mistake to think that uh, people always want freedom. Freedom is hard to carry. It's it's something that 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 is challenging for an individual. Sometimes it's something that brings with it a certain responsibility. Uh, you have to want to take a certain responsibility for yourself. And what 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 sometimes after a prolonged period of individualism, um, people become so sick of 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 their freedom and their lack of direction in life, uh, that they that they start to to long for a harsh, strict leader. That's something that is described by Gustave Le Bon already very well. So I definitely agree that there are different, uh, 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 definitely differences between cultures or or, or countries. Um, uh, for instance, in Western Europe, in Belgium and um, um, Ireland. Uh, there seem to uh, Belgium and Ireland seem to be the most obedient uh, countries uh, in, in in Europe. Maybe that has to do with the fact that the levels of uh, psychological distress were highest in uh, in Belgium and Ireland. But I don't know for sure. For sure, of course, that could be an explanation. Maybe it's something else. We should study it really in detail and for a very long period of time to be a little bit sure about why uh, the phenomenon of mass formation was so intense in Belgium and in Ireland, uh, and, and, and maybe in Western Europe in general. Uh, so there are definitely differences. Uh, and I think that um, the dissonant voice voices uh, will have more effect uh, the weaker the phenomenon, the phenomenon of mass formation is. I'm quite sure about that. But in any case, it's necessary for the dissonant voices to continue to speak out, really. <laughs> it's, it's really necessary. And um, because, well, mass formation is identical to hypnosis. Identical. It's the same. Like, what happens in hypnosis, the, a hypnotist is someone who has a, a natural talent to uh, withdraw uh, the attention and the psychological energy from the environment and then focus it all on one single aspect, one small aspect of reality, for instance, a pendulum that moves on a chain or just the hypnotizing voice of someone. And once the attention is focused on one small point, people don't see the rest of reality anymore. It is as if the rest of reality doesn't exist anymore psychologically. It has no impact anymore. That's exactly what happens. What happens in a phenomenon of mass formation and in the corona crisis, 
The corona measures claimed numerous victims, but people were not aware of it anymore. They didn't, that, that part of reality didn't have an impact anymore. I can explain it in detail, but I won't do it now. Uh, so, but in, and once this attention is focused, it's very strong. People uh, uh, don't see the rest of reality anymore. You can perfectly, under these conditions, under a hypnosis, you can perfectly perform uh, an operation, a surgical operation on the people. They won't notice it. They won't feel it. You can cut straight through the best breastbone if you want of someone. The person won't feel it. That's what happens all the time. Here in the University Hospital of Liège in Belgium, hundreds of times a year, people are... Uh, uh, operated, people uh, go through a surgical operation under a simple procedure of hypnosis. So that's the reason why if in a, a mass formation has egg, does exactly the same, first, all the attention is withdrawn, is withdrawn from the environment. Usually that part of the process happens spontaneously. Then it's focused all on one point of reality, for instance, a corona narrative, the measures, and then people don't notice the rest of reality anymore. And they seem not to be really aware anymore that they lose everything their health their wealth the future of the future of their children everything it can all disappear they won't really notice it it will it will not have a psychological impact anymore so and if this process continues longer and longer and longer the hypnosis or the mass formation will become deeper and deeper and deeper people will become more and more and more convinced that their narrative is the only true one that they stick to the facts and that all the others uh, are wrong and uh, are not capable uh, of, uh, of, 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 uh, of sound rational thinking anymore. They will dehumanize the people who do not go along with the masses more and more and more. And in the end, they will feel that it is their ethical duty to destroy the people who do not go along with the masses. That's typically what Stalin taught, what Hitler taught. They were both convinced that they really helped those inferior races or that they really helped all these uh, social classes, all these dying social classes, as Stalin put it. So that's typically what happens time and time again. And now it comes, if the dissonant voice, it's just crucial, I repeat this time and time again, that the dissonant voice continues to speak out, even when we see time and time again that the people who are into the narrative, the corona narrative, or into the mass formation, do not wake up. Huh? Still, we will never succeed in waking up the people in mass formation. That is impossible, usually. Sometimes, exceptionally, someone will wake up, definitely. It happens from time to time. If you work very tactically, like I did in my book, actually, very slowly building up, uh, 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 overcoming the resistance, then I, heard, I hear from several people that they more or less became aware of what happened while reading my book. It can work, but it usually it will be exceptional. It will be the majority. You won't. You will never be able to wake up the majority. And but and that's so crucial. That's something that Gustave Le Bon described in his book, uh, The Psychology of the Crowd. Now, people won't wake up, but the dissonant voice will constantly disturb the hypnosis constantly and. Gustave Le Bon mentioned already that in a strange way, if the dissonant voices continue to speak out, the hypnosis never becomes so deep that people be become convinced that it is their ethical duty to kill the people or to 
eliminate the people who do not go along with the masses. So that's crucial. When you talk and when you speak, never expect that you will wake up people because you will be disappointed and you will become exhausted. You just have to know that by just expressing your opinion, by just speaking out, you will disturb, you will put a seed of doubt every time again in the people who believe in the narrative. And then that's the strategy. The only thing you have to do is we have to continue to speak up and maybe it will become dangerous. It's perfectly possible, but still we have to continue. And uh, in that way, the moment, the, so uh, the masses and the crowd and totalitarianism are typically self-destructive. They exhaust themselves. In the end, they become radically self-destructive towards themselves. The, the, the masses and the totalitarian state, to put it in the words of Hannah Arendt, Hannah Arendt, typically devours its own children in the end, always. So the only thing you have to make sure is that they exhaust themselves before they arrive at this point where they become convinced that they have to destroy the people who, who do not go along with this with them so that's that's what that's that's the strategy uh that's what we have to keep in mind like continue to speak out then the hypnosis will not become extremely deep and the masses will destroy themselves and exhaust themselves before or or without uh, first destroying the people who do not go along with them history is full of examples that confirm this the re like the mass formation emerged in maybe 20 or 25 countries in the first half of the 20th century just because the entire world as a consequence of industrialization and the uh, the the uh, the emergence of the first uh, examples of technology like radio or television, the entire population, world population, slowly uh, uh, became in a state where they were vulnerable for mass formation. But in most countries, the process of mass formation started, but it collapsed quite soon, quite early. And there were only two countries, like Nazi Germany and Russia, and maybe China, although most people Many, many scholars like Hannah Arendt says that China never became a full-fledged totalitarian state, strangely enough. Um, there were several mm -hmm. crucial differences with, uh, the Soviet with Nazi Germany and definitely with the Soviet Union. But the reason why the process of mass formation collapsed uh, before the destruction began um, in, in the other countries was that people continued to speak out while in Nazi Germany and in the Soviet Union, um, the opposition, the resistance, at a certain moment decided to stop to speak out and to go underground. That happened in 1930 in the Soviet Union and in 1935 in Nazi Germany. And within six months, eight months, the destruction began. Stalin started his large purges, which claimed tens of millions of victims, somewhere between 1930 and 1931. And the same happened in Nazi Germany between 1935 and 1936 very shortly after the opposition decided to stop to speak out. So, and there was a second reason, like Nazi Germany both and the Soviet Union had a very large population. It seems that large-scale mass formation cannot continue very long if the population is too small. Nobody knows exactly why. It might have to do with the fact that the dissonant voices that speak out in public space 
even if they do not uh, have any technology at their disposal, have a, a larger impact in a small population than in a large population. That's a possibility. Nobody knows exactly why. But the fact is that it's really crucial. History shows it time and time again. As long as the dissonant voice continues to continues to uh, to speak out, um, uh, the hypnosis will not become complete. It, there, will be, there will always be a, a kind of um, disruption of uh, of the of the hypnotic state. And I stress that time and time again. I know that many people don't believe me, but it's true that it's both the leaders of the masses and the masses themselves that are hypnotized. So. And then I'm talking about the public leaders of the masses. Maybe there are all kinds of people who are manipulating behind the screens. I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about the public leaders of the masses, the people who articulate the mass narrative in the public space. They are hypnotized, not by their ideology. Uh, I mean, by their ideology, they fanatically, blindly believe in their ideology. For instance, the race theories or uh, the Marxist theory in the Soviet Union, uh, and now transhumanist ideology, the technocratic ideology, believing that the only solution to the problems we are facing now, real or imagined, um, uh, is technological control, uh, and and uh, uh, and and this merging of the human being with technological devices, as uh, Yuval Harari describes in his book Homo Deus, a very Enthusiastically, I must say, <laughs> I think it will be a disaster, uh, uh, his ideology, but well, he is enthusiastic about it. But that's the ideology. So the, 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 the public leaders of the masses, uh, usually always, uh, Gustave Le Bon say, says always, they blindly believe in, an, in, the, in the ideology they promote. But, and that's crucial, many of the public leaders of the masses do not believe a single word of the narratives they use to promote the ideology in public space. So that's a difference. And at the same time, it's clear that there are public leaders who don't believe in the narratives, but there are people who really believe in the narratives, <laughs> who are also blind for the narratives. Usually it are the higher levels of the public leaders who know that the narratives are more used in a manipulative way to convince people to accept uh, the reshaping of society according to the ideology they believe in. Um, so that are some things that are, so also what I wanted to say is that it's also the leaders are influenced uh, by uh, uh, the dissonant voice. It's very clear. The dissonant voices influence the leaders. They start to doubt. That was why the uh, Nazi officers who were located in Denmark and in, Bul and in, uh, in Bulgaria in the Second World War they started to wake up just because the population there was just not sensitive to, for one reason or another, nobody knows why. Because Bulgaria, for instance, was an extremely anti-Semitic country, but still uh, the country was not sensitive or was not vulnerable for the, for the mass formation that almost, that had a grip on almost entire, uh, the entire Western Europe in, in, in the Second World War. But, well, <laughs> the Nazi leaders there, they were located there, they woke up. They started to re suddenly started to see like, well, what we are, what are we doing actually? And 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 then they, so it it works for the leaders as well, it, and and it works for the leaders as well. But uh, of course, the leaders realize that they even if they wake up, <laughs> they know that uh, if the masses wake up, they will be killed. <laughs> that's what that's that's what that's what uh, 
what uh, Gustave Le Bon said. If you take the lead of the masses, you better prepare to be hung, he said. You will, you will be killed by the masses once they wake up, because once they wake up, they will realize uh, the destruction that happened and the self-destruction that happened, and they will keep someone responsible. And usually they will um, uh, look in the direction of their leaders uh, when they want to find someone who is responsible for the damage done. Um, Good afternoon, uh, Professor Desmond. Uh, I'm Dexter Einerfeld uh, from South Africa. You have given quite extensive uh, insight into a mass formation. So the questions that I want to pose to you is basically now more specifically related to uh, COVID-19. So you have mentioned as well also during your statements, the evidence that you have given that uh, in order for mass formation to be initiated, it can be initiated spontaneously or alternatively artificially. So when we look at and also, and, and I think maybe perhaps let me also then say at the same time, in order for mass formation, the phenomenon to be clearly identified, there needs to be a narrative. So I'm putting the following proposition to you. When it comes to the COVID-19 narrative, and you can basically just say yay or nay, yes or no, can one then safely say that the COVID-19 narrative is a mass formation narrative objective? Do you agree with that, uh, Professor? Only yes or no? But wait, can you come again with the last part of it? Okay. Like what? So can, can we agree that the, the COVID narrative mass? Yeah, you have made a statement previously that when it comes to mass formation, you need to have a narrative. Yes. So in this grand jury investigations, we are investigating that is the mindset, the intentions of uh, the six defendants. So what I'm putting to you Having regard to what you've said, can one then safely say that when it comes to the phenomenon, which is mass formation, which you have brilliantly explained in quite detail, can one say that the COVID-19 narrative fulfilled that requirement to bring about mass formation, the objective of mass formation. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. It's, it's a perfect narrative. It's a perfect narrative to provoke okay. mass formation. Definitely, yes. Okay, great. Uh, but, but of course, well, that doesn't really answer the question whether or not it was intentionally created. And so that, 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 that's another question. And, uh, but but it, it was definitely a perfect narrative. It was a perfect okay. narrative. Yeah, definitely. Great. So then the, the, the next question itself. So now we've, we are all clear. Uh, the members of the jury understand you have explained extensively when it comes to mass formation. We are now clear and the evidence is quite clear that uh, the COVID-19 narrative is a clear mass formation objective. So then the follow up question, um, and that is also based on what you have already actually stated. You have stated clearly that in order for mass formation to be initiated, it can either be initiated spontaneously or alternatively artificially. So when it comes to this COVID-19 mass formation, if we actually can title it like that, 
what will you say has it been initiated artificially or spontaneously and if you say spontaneously if you say artificially can you briefly just give an explanation yes look first and for all it's not my expertise to decide about uh, whether or not I think it's uh, artificially created or, or, or whether it emerged spontaneously. But I can give you my impression, of course. I think, to be honest, that since for a long time, uh, the large institutions such as the WHO and, uh, and, and, and some other global institutions already would have preferred to deal differently with, uh, with uh, um, uh, viral infections and so on they would have preferred to, um, to uh, use a different uh, vaccination strategy. So there, there were already ideologically colored plans to, to, uh, to uh, in, in large institutions, um, plans to switch, I think, from a democratic uh, policy to a much more technocratic policy. So these plans were there. Um, there were many people who were convinced that all the major challenging challenges that we were facing in this society could only be solved in a technocratic way, not a democratic way. So um, that, of course, uh, definitely played a role in the construction of the narrative mm -hmm. about the virus and also and uh, the strategy used to deal with the narrative um uh, so i i you know and i think in chapter nine of of, of the book that i wrote uh, the psychology of totalitarianism I, I really talk about that like to what extent do we have to see what has been happening now as the consequence of a plan of a small elite uh, or rather as um in the end, the effect of a certain ideological and institutional changes um, that happened throughout the last one, two centuries, and in particular throughout the last uh, decade, for instance. I describe it there. Uh, I, I usually prefer to consider it in a slightly more complex way and to believe that it is the effect of several factors that work together and that create um, and that indeed lead, lead to the construction of a certain narrative that, of course, um, uh, in one way or another, um, fits into an ideology that is fostered by uh, the large institutions of, the institutions of this world. Um, well, that's my two-cent word opinion. No, thank you very much. That's actually more than two cents word. But you know what, uh, Professor, what I would like you to do, and that is basically just so that uh, the jury and everybody who listens to your evidence can have a clear understanding. Um, can you just give us a very brief example when it comes to uh, a spontaneous initiation of a, uh, of a mass formation? Not, no, no need to actually make reference to COVID-19, but just, I mean, if it happens spontaneously, obviously, if we don't have clarity on that, it can be that uh, the defendants in the defense can come up with an argument and they are entitled to say, no, 
but this is it happens spontaneously itself. So can you just for clarity purposes, just very briefly explain that when it comes to spontaneous mass formation, what is spontaneous mass formation? Well, spontaneous mass formation is when people are in a situation uh, in which they feel anxious or very concerned or confronted with intense psychological distress, they start to, as a group, they start to look for an explanation for what for their distress and their, their anxiety. Uh, there are very a lot of examples, very well known examples and historical examples of where, for instance, soldiers that are in a state of high anxiety and stress suddenly can start to uh, to believe uh, in certain narratives that are completely absurd and wrong, uh, in which they even start to hallucinate uh, uh, to to develop group hallucinations, and uh, 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 where in, in which nobody actually knows in the end who invented the narrative but suddenly someone comes up with one thing and the second one adds an element to uh, to the narrative to the explanation and suddenly there is an entire narrative everybody believes in it and and nobody still seems to be capable anymore of taking a critical distance it happens it happens all the time um so but what what also happens very often it is a kind of a mixture and sometimes a, a, a narrative starts to emerge in a society and certain people uh, use it immediately to uh, get a grip on society, to get a grip on the masses, to use the masses to their advantage. Um, well, I don't know. I think in this situation, it has really to, it has really, well, and I'm sure you guys are doing this, eh? really investigating where the narrative comes from. Did it emerge before the, the, the pandemic started or did it rather, or before the crisis started or, or was it constructed throughout the, 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 uh, the um the crisis and maybe it was a mixture of the two as i said usually it's a mixture of the two there are certain institutions who would prefer to use lockdowns and then large-scale vaccination strategies to uh to to deal with uh with uh with with certain real or imagined problems in society and then uh suddenly one of these narratives becomes influential uh starts to be successful and before you know it, everybody goes along with the narrative, and nobody uh, can uh, can uh, is able is capable to stop what is happening. Um, uh, so, in that case, you have a kind of a mixture. On the one hand, there might be people who promote the narrative intentionally, but most people just go along with it spontaneously. I think that's usually what happens. And so, Gustave Le Bon said in the 19th century that in order for a mass formation to emerge, there always has to be someone who articulates a suggestion in public space. That means a kind of, the society is in the grip of a kind of free-floating social, uh, free-floating psychological distress, anxiety, and so on. And suddenly someone suggests something, Gustave Le Bon says. Namely, he suggests something like, well, that might be dangerous. and. For one reason or another, some of these suggestions might become very successful and might lead to a, a full-fledged phenomenon of mass formation. So I really prefer to consider it as a complex dynamical system that emerges in a society, which several factors contribute to, uh, and which usually is used by people who, uh, who um, have the 
means at their disposal to, to manipulate the masses. That's always, always the case. As, uh, Thank you very much, uh, Professor. I, I have a very quick question, Professor. Uh, the uh, narrative of the uh, that's common in the United States anyway is for the greater good. And to me, that seems as if it is laying the groundwork for the perhaps uh, loneliness that you described earlier and disconnection from natural, uh, natural, how did you word it? From social and natural. Environment, uh, yes. Yeah. Right. Is, do you agree with that? For the greater good. Um, well, the masses are always convinced that what they are doing is for the greater good. Mm -hmm. Always. That is a typical solidarity of the masses. But mm -hmm. and, and you you wonder whether or not this might contribute to the disconnection? Yes. Yes. Yes, definitely. Yes. It's it's mass this mass phenomenon uh mm -hmm. leads to even more social isolation and disconnectedness, definitely, yes. And, and it's this and one and just one follow-up question. I didn't mean to interrupt you there. Um Voltaire had a quote that sounds to me as if you were perhaps describing this uh, phenomenon. And he said, those who can convince you to believe absurdities can convince you to commit atrocities. Do yeah. you agree that that is a synopsis in a way of what is happening now? Yes, absolutely. That's that's the point. If you first, indeed, I couldn't uh, articulate it better than Voltaire. It's, that's exactly the connection between absurdity and cruelty uh, that uh, that we always see in mass formation. First the absurdity and then the cruelty. Yes. Thank you very much. You're welcome. That's where we have Hi, to talking. I have a super quick question as well, um, if that's all right. Um, I'm yeah. Leslie Manukian of Health Futures Fund. And my my question is, you just mentioned in, in response to another question that as long as there are dissidents who keep speaking out, that that's enough to prevent complete, I guess, the completion of the mass hypnosis. What I'm wondering is, what about, and you've also mentioned in another um, interview I watched that humor was one of the ways to bypass this. But I've heard other people say ridicule is a, is a good mechanism. And so I'm just wondering how you assess the different ways to bypass this mind control, essentially, this programming, and also whether or not initiatives like I'm working on something, a declaration in opposition to the international health regulation um, amendments, are these kinds of citizen initiatives successful? Are they, um, do they have potential? Do they help? Do they contribute to stopping the problems or are they just a waste of our time and energy? No, 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 of course. Of course, they are useful. We, we have to develop parallel structures um, that will be necessary in the future, I think. Uh, but these parallel structures will only uh, be capable to survive if we continue to speak out, because otherwise they will be destroyed very quickly. Um, and uh, but but every I, I mean demonstrations uh, uh, are important. Um, also, like just speaking out on a small scale in a shop, uh, on the market, uh, everywhere, uh, to colleagues. In a, in a, in a, usually the best strategy is in, is to do it in a quiet way, not trying to convince someone, 
not uh, uh, we shouldn't continue too long but just speaking out making sure that uh, our voice resonates for a moment with and people who who uh, buy into the dominant narrative that's what we have to do with all the other like uh, lawsuits and so on that's all very necessary even uh, if it might seem that our uh, projects are not successful uh, in the first. Uh, and what about and and what about ridicule, humor? What are the best tactics when we do speak out? Is it just oh, I don't agree with that, or is there something that's particularly helpful? Both, both, both. Uh, just saying, I, I I look at this in a different way, or I don't agree with it. Humor is very powerful, but very difficult. It has to be used in a very, very sensitive way, because otherwise it will make people angry. Uh, and 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 uh, they can be angry a little bit, but uh, if they become too angry, they will be even more convinced of of their own narrative, or they will they will. Mm. Uh, so it's 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 something something very powerful, but 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 it also has to be uh, well when it is applied in a very sensitive way. It's 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 very good, I think. Yes. Mm. Final question, Virginie. Yes, thank you very much, Professor Desmet. It was really, really interesting. And uh, I would like to uh, make uh, some observation. I'm Virginie de Arujorica, attorney at the Paris Bar. Throughout the current crisis, it would seem that the goal has been to consciously disable our senses. Lockdowns, masks, social distancing, has led to the absence of tenderness, touching, smiles on all the emotions that generate the highest vibrations. This leads to a psychological as well as a physical disease, since we know, for example, that touching is very important in order to acquire a certain balance. Only low, low emotions are allowed and we can observe a real submission, the collective depression. As you say, it's a perfect narrative knowing that the virus is an invisible enemy, which allows to increase the paranoia. I'm personally very concerned about the new generations who have suffered from the abuse of masks, isolation, adult anxiety propagated by, by mass media. As you explained very well, the mass formation can lead parents to accept such treatments towards their own children. Then the new technologies have come to increase this distance from spirituality. Do you agree on these points? If technology Maybe. has replaced spirituality. Technology uh, has replaced spirituality. I believe rational, rational understanding and uh, has replaced uh, spirituality to a certain extent, yes. Technology can be used to spread information also about spirituality, I think, but in the end it destroys something. Technology, that's also something that I describe in my book. Technology destroys the resonance between people, that's for sure. Like the use of technology is perfect to spread information around the world, perfect, but it destroys the core, the human core of, of human interactions. It, 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 it stops the resonance. There is a little bit of resonance when a, a, a conversation is digitalized, but much less than than in a, in a real conversation. So technology is is is, in my opinion, 
the industrialization and the, the technology use is together with this rationalist mechanist thinking is the real cause of mass formation and totalitarianism as a real cause. The ultimate cause is has to be situated in the tradition of enlightenment and the fanatic belief in rationality as the guiding principle of uh, human existence. That's an illusion. And all the great scientists pointed in that direction. They all left this rationalist view of man and the world and claimed that only a very small part of reality can be understood in a rational way and that for the rest we can only know reality by empathically resonating with it. So the ultimate cause of mass formation and totalitarianism, but it would take us too, long, too far to explain this now, but in a series of steps you can really understand that both in the development of the elite and in the development of the psychological conditions and the masses in the population, it's the use, it's the rationalization of the world, the industrialization of the world and the use of technology that is the real cause why both the elite and the population evolved in a way that prepared it for totalitarian uh, dominance. Thank you very much, Professor. You're welcome. Yeah. I think this was a very, very important expert uh, statement by Professor Desmet, and it gives us a much better idea of what's going on and why this narrative that has so many holes in it um, is still present in the population and has these effects on people so that they um, even voluntarily take the um, vaccine or the so-called vaccine, which is uh, where it's becoming more and more obvious uh, to people that it's just not very safe. And um, but it's it's I think this is um, a very important part of the puzzle and good to understand what's going on and why it was also possible for the people who had like other things than health, the health of the population in mind um, to manipulate um, the population in such way. Now I would like to give the word to um, Dr. Rainer Fülmich, attorney at law in Germany and in America. And currently um, Rainer is in America and will introduce our new and uh, the next expert. Yes, uh, thank you. Um, I was um, once again very proud and happy to hear such a, an, a, an extremely competent witness on this panel. But I also want to take this opportunity to reintroduce uh, all of the uh, uh, members of this panel. Um, first of, of course, uh, Anna Garner, um, attorney at law from New Mexico, United States. Then we have uh, Deepali Oja, who is an attorney uh, from India, a member of the Indian Bar Association. And then we have Virginie de Arroyo Requia. I really don't know. It sounds like you, your uh, last name is Spanish, but uh, maybe you can uh, tell us about that. She's French, a French attorney. And then we have Dexter, Dexter uh, Reinefeld, Reinfeld, some people <laughs> pronounce your name from uh, South Africa. And of course, uh, we have our judge Rui da Fonseca y Castro from Portugal. Um, but it is now my pleasure uh, to introduce Professor Mark Miller, 
who is one of the foremost experts on media uh, from uh, New York University. Um, Professor Miller, as a result of our hearing so far, we have come to the conclusion that uh, what we are witnessing, this corona crisis, as they call, this, uh, call it, is it doesn't have anything to do with uh, health care, doesn't have anything, anything to do with a health crisis, but rather it has to do with the rollout of a long-planned agenda by the so-called elites, probably more aptly called predators, um, in order um, to better understand why this seems to be working so well, as uh, Vivian has already indicated, why is it that it's been working so well? We needed more insight into the psychological backdrop. That's, that's uh, the reason why we uh, interviewed Professor De Desmond. But of course, we realized that the major means, the vector, so to speak, the major means of conveying this psychological manipulation, as I would uh, see it, is, of course, the media. Um, do you agree with that? And what can you tell us about that? I certainly agree. In fact, that's what prompted me to contact you in the first place um, in hopes that you would include me in your deliberations, uh, because I uh, have a certain expertise in uh, studying propaganda. Um, I've written about it. Uh, I've taught the subject for years at New York University until um, I was no longer allowed to teach the propaganda course there for reasons having everything to do with the crisis that we're discussing. Uh, I believe that this whole catastrophe would never have been possible if it were not for the um, avid participation of nearly all the media worldwide. Uh, I listened to a, a fair amount of Dr. Desmet's um, presentation. I'm a great admirer of his work. I'm, I'm now reading his book. Um, and like all great, um, you know, uh, theories, he raises uh, probably more important questions than, than he can possibly answer. One of the questions that has occurred to me as I've studied his work is to what extent are we witnessing something um, fairly new or peculiar to moments at which mass formation is likelier, as, as he argues? Or have we seen aspects of this kind of thing before? Have there been uh, propaganda drives in, in the, um, you might say, the pre-totalitarian past that were just as successful at um, uh, obsessing people, if not outright hypnotizing them? And, and I believe that the answer to that question is yes. Um, in many ways, this crisis is unprecedented. As a propaganda blitzkrieg, it is unprecedented, first of all, in the fact that it is global. We have never seen this before. Uh, we, we tend to think of the history of modern propaganda as, as an episodic phenomenon striking particular nations at certain times. Uh, and then when that uh, uh, episode is over, we look back on it as a moment at which everybody was under a kind of spell. And that when the propaganda stopped, the spell started to break. And it would take some people um, more time than others to snap out of it. And some have never snapped out of it. But I'm thinking in, in particular of the First World War. 
this war was brought on and sold successfully to millions of people who would ordinarily have have uh, been completely uninterested in in participating in that slaughter. Um, this was all accomplished through uh, a propaganda of a, a scale and sophistication that 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 the world had not yet seen. We tend to date the history of modern propaganda from World War One, even though there were many of there were many prior examples of successful manipulation of mass populations. But we 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 date the history of modern propaganda from World War One because of the um, enormous success with which the governments of both Britain and the United States um, used all the means at their disposal, including some of the youngest mass media, like cinema, for example. They used all the media at their disposal to hammer home a, a, um, an infuriating message about the Germans who were referred to as the Huns. Uh, and uh, th that success was based on um, uh, a really startling number of, of wild lies about atrocities said to have committed by the Germans against the Belgians. Uh, this worked like a charm. It worked on a lot of extremely sophisticated people, a lot of very enlightened people. In fact, a lot of sophisticated enlightened people took part in the propaganda drive. Uh, and they did so, I believe, uh, in all sincerity because they were themselves completely convinced of the truth of what they were propagating, the stories that they were telling. Um, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I look forward to the moment when I might one day be able to talk to Professor Desmet directly about this historical question. Um, but um, to answer your question more succinctly, there is no doubt whatsoever that the media has enabled uh, and, and largely driven this, this, uh, this disaster uh, because that's what propaganda depends on. And I make a larger point that, that this catastrophe is the result of a um, dire failure by the professional classes worldwide, especially throughout the West, certainly the medical, medical establishment, uh, certainly the academy of which I'm a, a part, uh, and above all, journalism. And, and I say above all because in a sense, journalism, at least in, in countries like the United States, enjoys its status as an institution uh, protected, whose freedom is protected by the government precisely because the framers of the Bill of Rights understood that uh, the, the, the most important institution for the prevention of government overreach and the deprivation of you know, people's rights and liberties is, is, is what we call the media, uh, the newspapers is what Jefferson called them. Uh, that, that's why the First Amendment includes the press for special protection, because it is the, um, ideally speaking, it is the obligation of the media to um, keep the government honest and keep the people well-informed so that they know enough to take care of themselves and, and protect their liberty. Um, now, 
as a matter of hard and unfortunate fact, that uh, civic mission uh, that gives journalism a certain kind of protection and prestige has been consistently trumped by um, a number of factors, including careerism. It's all very well to talk, you know, in high-flown terms about about um, how the media enjoys a certain kind of constitutional protection, and they and and we can, you know, sound off about their obligation to look for the truth, etc. But in the real world, especially um, since uh, the middle of the 20th century, the media has been profoundly corrupted by a number of um, factors. And uh, those who work in the media, like those who teach at universities and like most doctors, um, have, have to go along to get along. Their income depends on it. Their uh, prestige depends on it. And it would be a matter of political, I should say, career suicide for, say, a journalist to depart from the script and contradict the narrative that everybody else is publishing. Uh, you know, that doesn't, I, I don't think that um, any of that constitutes an excuse for what they do, but it helps us understand why they do what they do. I think they, by and large, have a tendency to, to make themselves believe what they're writing and, and uh, or, or uttering on TV or on the radio. It's in their interests to make themselves believe that what they're giving us as news is the truth. And so they do, um, uh, but I, I again, you know, even even those who are fanatically committed to the um, ostensible truth of the narrative, I, I think, um, cannot claim to be exempt from punishment or or indictment for that reason. You know, um, the last time we spoke, uh, Reiner, we we talked a little bit about the um, Nazi propagandists who faced justice uh, during the Nuremberg trials. Uh, probably the most um, uh, egregious perpetrator of that kind of uh, hateful uh, propaganda, which in, you know was um, constantly inciting the German people to genocide, was Julius Streicher, the publisher of Der Stürmer, a rather vile anti-Semitic uh, rag that you know whose mission was consistently to dehumanize the Jews and and whip up as much mass hatred of them as possible he absolutely believed in the truth of what he was doing uh and and when he when they hanged him i think his last words were 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 a, a kind of stubborn affirmation of of the value of of uh, hitler's example to him personally so he never snapped out of it or anything but that did not um that did not make him innocent. That was no excuse. Uh, I suppose I've tipped my hand by telling that story, but I, I do think that the journalists who have participated in this uh, in this horror are uh, culpable for uh, a number of reasons. Well, um, I have one central question. I think it's a central question because the major message that uh, we, um, take away from uh, Professor Desmond's testimony is that dissenting voices must keep on speaking out loud. We must continue to tell the truth. 
that seems to be, uh, to me at least, to be the most important message. Um, and in that respect, the media are even more important because they're not just in from what we've seen um, and what we've learned uh, from other uh, from other experts, but we can see this firsthand. Um, they're not just ignoring uh, the other side of the story, w the one that we consider the truth, but they're even fighting it um, by framing people, by including new a new type of journal journalism a self-appointed fact-checking group of people who are who serve the only purpose of framing people who um offer different opinions uh, that's why i think the media are even more important um in order in, in this particular situation uh for the um, people who are not in line with the government to speak out um, if this is silenced, in my view, this is the end of democracy. And uh, if you listen to Professor Desmet, it'll be the beginning of the killing. Therefore, it is extremely important that the media um, are not allowed to silence all the differing voices. The only way out of this, it seems to me, and it seems to me to be the only way out of this entire situation, is by us turning to our own media, which is now the alternative media. Um, do you agree with that? Yes, I do. I, I, I want to qualify it a, a little tiny bit by noting that, you know, um, before COVID, the expression, the alternative media would, would, would refer to the left, the left press, um, the press that would, you know, question the rush to war, for example. Uh, the alternative media now is very different. It's much more alternative because it's even an alternative to that old alternative media. Um, nearly all the left press has been uh, yodeling from the same songbook that, that the entire corporate media uses. There's been no difference at all. And this is very interesting because uh, on the one hand, you know, when you're talking about the corporate media, you can say, well, typically they... Um, play the tune that's called by those who pay them, right? Who pays the piper calls the tune. It has been ever thus with commercial media since the late 19th century, when uh, it became too expensive, tech, you know, technically expensive to turn out a, um, an attractive product, you know, newspapers in full color, stuff like that. It became impossible to do that uh, simply on the money, on the revenues that would come in from circulation. See, the newspapers in the 18th century got by simply through circulation. So everyone who subscribed to a given newspaper would, 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 would put in their two cents or however much it was. And that revenue kept a much simpler kind of newspaper system going. But with the evolution of newspaper technology, um, it became increasingly necessary to find more money than that to, to, to keep operating. And that's why the press had to turn to commercial advertising, which unlike the newspapers in the 18th century, um, uh, did not actually serve the interests of its readership any longer so much as it served the interests of its advertisers to whom the press would deliver its readers, see? So, so since the, the, the press became a commercial entity, 
uh, it has basically worked in service to um, its advertisers. And the most prolific of its advertisers, the most generous, the most lavish at first was, was the patent medicine industry. This is what we call snake oil, you know. This was a cottage industry devoted to selling uh, products that were not just useless in terms of curing a given condition or disease, but uh, often toxic and all too often addictive. There was cocaine in some of these products. There was morphine in others. There was alcohol in some. And indeed, in the late 19th century, very few people know this, the United States had its first cocaine crisis. But it wasn't a matter of the disadvantaged, you know, uh, dealing drugs with gangs or anything like that. We're talking about middle class and upper middle class lawyers and professionals and so on who bought these products in good faith, hoping it would cure their, you know, phlegmy condition or whatever else it was, and they would end up addicted to cocaine, right? The newspapers never uttered a peep of protest. They never engaged in any investigation of what was in these products for the obvious reason that they depended on those revenues. And that set an example, right? Uh, the same thing happened with the cigarette industry uh, starting in the 20s, you know, and lasting until the 70s, this decade upon decade during which the commercial media, TV, radio, all of them, um, turned a blind eye to the ever-growing body of medical evidence that smoking was extremely bad for your health, right? Now we've seen the same thing with cell phones and, uh, you know, the vaccines, so-called, and so on. So that explains to some extent why the commercial media has been so captive to uh, Pfizer, for example. And I'm sure you've all seen the montage of moments brought to you by Pfizer, one news show after another. It, 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 it appears to be the case that Pfizer has sponsored just about every news outlet in the United States and beyond. And that helps us understand to some extent uh, uh, why the commercial media has been as bad on this issue as it is. Uh, but that isn't exactly the case with the left press. The left press uh, has been just as bad as the commercial press. A show like Democracy Now! or an outlet like Truth Out! or uh, indeed people like Noam Chomsky and Michael Moore, I mean, they're all just as bad as their counterparts uh, in the world of the New York Times and CNN. And I think this, I don't think this has to do, I am convinced that this has to do with the source of their funding. Uh, the left media has tended to be subsidized by, uh, you know, grants from the Ford Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation, the Open Society Institute. Uh, these are uh, outlets that have long served as pass-throughs for uh, this central intelligence agency and so on. So uh, there too, the funding helps us understand why that you know um, sector of the media has has so badly misled its its readers and its viewers. What we now regard as the alternative press for our purposes, that is to say, as the forum where we are allowed to talk about the other side of the story, where we are allowed to question the narrative. Th that's a, a very small. Uh, it's kind of an ad hoc uh, uh, um, arrangement. Uh, you know, Joe Rogan's rise to astonishing popularity and, and his uh, working his way through to an audience of like 12 million people per show and an audience of some 40 million people uh, who have watched his interview of Dr. Malone, you know, 
that we're talking here about the fairly recent rise of podcasts that have uh, kind of uh, you know filled the gap left by what we used to call the alternative press. You see, uh, but the fact remains your your primary takeaway from Professor Desmet's um, uh, presentation is is right on is on the money. We must continue to tell the truth. And in so doing, we 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 have been, uh, I think, predictably, um, much abused, uh, 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 slandered, silenced, gagged, uh, often uh, deplatformed. Uh, uh, doctors have been delicensed, you know, for departing from the script. Uh, you know, uh, I, I myself just got back from Iceland where I went to give a talk and the, Ice, the Icelandic media uh, uh, um, picked up a number of slanderous um, uh, claims about my work and, and, and myself. All of us who have been engaged in this struggle for the last couple of years have taken our lumps because this is a crucial point. You have to understand that propaganda is not just the uh, generation of untruths. I mean, for one thing, propaganda can be truthful, can be factually accurate. One could say that we who systematically do our best to speak out against this madness and the hope of waking people up, we're doing propaganda too. So propaganda need not be false. But it isn't just a matter of pumping out material claims uh, of various kinds. Propaganda also depends just as much on censorship. Censorship is the obverse of propaganda, and it always has been, because propaganda does not want an argument. People often use the expression mass persuasion as a kind of synonym for propaganda. That's actually a bit misleading, because there is nothing persuasive about the process whereby propaganda uh, gets under people's skin, right? Persuasion is more um, accurately used when we talk about the traditions of ancient oratory, democratic oratory in Greece, in Rome, and so on. Those were exercises in attempted mass persuasion. Each uh, orator, each with his own particular argument, each orator would stand up and make his case for the demos, for the people, right, the audience. Um, the public, right? And then the public would decide which speaker made the most compelling case. So none of the speakers were trying to silence the other speakers. None of the speakers were taking heinous steps to see to it that the other speakers couldn't speak. Uh, it didn't work that way. Uh, it was a persuasive process. Propaganda is not. Propaganda is not a matter of mass persuasion. Propaganda is a matter of mass suasion. It simply wants to move us, and to that end, will engage in any kind of manipulation to get us uh, uh, on, you know, get us with the program to the point of systematically demonizing, slandering, uh, libeling those who try to contradict the narrative. It is essential to silence the other side, okay? Not to rebut what the other side says. That's not what they do. As you all know, the fact checkers don't make a careful counter argument. The fact checkers don't offer counter evidence, right? They don't respect 
the other side enough to do that, right? What they want to do is be the only narrative out there, right? The only narrative people hear, the only narrative people know about. And to give you another example from the past uh, of, of this kind of uh, deliberate silencing of the other side, because this too has been a feature of propaganda for a very long time. I can tell you that the day after uh, World War I began, the British sent a ship uh, into the Atlantic to slice the uh, Germany's cables to the United States. So that Germany was unable to telegraph any of its side of the story to the audience in America. This was a very intelligent, if cynical step because the British knew that if they had a monopoly on the story that, that was conveyed to the United States, and remember, again, it was, it was an infuriating story. It was a rabble-rousing story. It was the story of babies impaled on bayonets. It was the story of nurses having their breasts cut off. It was the story of a Canadian soldier having been crucified on the battlefield. I mean, there's tons of stories like these. Um, there were a lot of stories out there right now that are very similar to those stories, but we're hearing them about Russia today, whereas the stories were about Germany, you know, a hundred and some years ago. But the point is that 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 precisely because the media should serve as a forum where we are all allowed to uh, uh, you know make our cases, right? Proper democratic governance demands that we hear all sides of the issue just as proper scientific uh, method demands that we hear all sides of the issue, right? So um, the media is indeed particularly culpable for its deliberate, and I would say, I would even say conspiratorial efforts to uh, uh, help the likes of Dr. Fauci and Francis Collins uh, by um, defaming their critics. Uh, as they have done, not, not simply since this whole thing started, but as Bobby Kennedy has taught us in his book on Dr. Fauci, this is what they started doing um, decades ago during the HIV AIDS um, moment, right? Uh, the, 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 the press has willingly served as a kind of handmaiden to these powerful bureaucrats uh, and 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 has you know therefore uh, grossly and dangerously misinformed uh, their audiences worldwide. Um, Professor Miller, can I ask you? Um, I'm, I'm interested in learning about the source of this all. We see you mentioned also this is like a global phenomenon, and it's kind mm -hmm. of striking that basically at the same time the same story uh, popped up. So it's even the same terms like um, flattening the curve, like uh, social distancing. I mean, these are words that are kind of that, that are new creations. So it's very unlikely that at the same time, you know, these words would just like pop up in the minds of the politicians or like, uh, you know, health people are in, in charge of like health, um, healthcare, whatever, you know, the experts like Professor Drosten and others that they would immediately talk about like you know, come up with these terms and these pictures, basically these images. So there must be some sort of um, main source for this, for all of this. I mean, in Germany, we had a, a so-called panic paper 
that uh, was leaked from the um, that was circulating and, and then leaked from uh, in the interior uh, ministry of the interior where they um, also had suggested that panic should be introduced into the population by addressing that for instance the grandma could die if the child um, you know uh, asymmetrically infected would be um, like hugging the grandma or whatever and these um, these kind of images these kind of ideas um, seem to have also been circulating in England and in other places so how is that possible do you see that there's some sort of like one unique source where it all uh, was distrib distributed from and was it then just spread by the media knowing what to pick up and the politicians so that it could be like a sort of is that just a, a like a um, do you know that they all hop onto the same on the same narrative or could there even have been some sort of I mean directive we don't know that you know but like um, is it a spontaneous in your view is it a spontaneous um, activity or is it is there more to it? Oh, uh, it, it could not possibly be spontaneous um, when you have this kind of unanimity uh, where the global the global media. Uh, is uh, saying the same thing to the extent that it becomes literally ines inescapable. You cannot not hear it. Uh, every channel you watch, every publication you read, they all hammer the same memes. They all say the same things. They use, as you note, they use the same language. Now it is, it is likely that when you're talking about a nation's press, you know, gripped with war fever, uh, it is it is likely or at least plausible that, you know, as they're all carried away by by the war spirit and as they're all eager to connect with their readership and give the readership the kind of material the readership craves in wartime, that this is, you know, to some extent organic. It's like a, a kind of a natural the natural response of a commercial media system to a, a war that that is extremely popular. But when you're talking about a, a, a media systems all over the world saying exactly the same thing uh, and defaming the exact same people and doing that in the same terms, uh, it, it really would strain credulity to um, argue that it just sort of happened. It does not just sort of happen. Now, there are certain factors. I, I guess I'll, I'll do something somewhat like what Professor Desmet has done. Uh, which is to say, give you a number of the factors that have contributed to the um, uniformity of the media uh, that then made it much easier for whatever directives have been used to, to, to manipulate them to do so, okay? The press, first of all, is structurally concentrated to an unprecedented extent, you know? The corporate concentration of the media has been ongoing since the 60s. Uh, in, in the United States, it was um, accelerated first under President Reagan in the 80s and then under President Clinton in the 90s. And now we have, as everybody knows, uh, five multinational corporations that are um, basically responsible for roughly 90% of all the material we take in. Uh, so that if a given company you know, um, uh, owns a lot of uh, local TV news stations, you know, um, they uh, have a very easy time 
you know, providing the script to all those news teams all over the country because they're all under the same corporate umbrella, right? I've already noted that this, um, you know, uh, unification of the media is also driven by the power of the advertisers on the commercial media. And no less, of course, it is driven by the very powerful influence of the media's owners. And here we get into a really tangled situation because we we have a media cartel in the West, basically, certainly in the United States, uh, you know, under under which they all kind of own each other. You know, I mean, you know, AT&T will own, you know, uh, its own media holdings, but it also owns pieces of its so-called rivals, you know, so they're, they're so convolved with each other, it's impossible to extricate them. The point is, the people who work in the media are, are much more easily um, brought on board and, and pers- let's say, persuaded to use the script they're handed because of their um, employment by um, these enormous uh, corporate multinationals, uh, which are also under the thrall of their advertisers. And Big Pharma is probably the most um, uh, prolific of, of, of the advertisers out there. Uh, I think probably Pfizer in particular. Now this latter influence uh, through the use of money, right? Pfizer, having worked its will on the media because of the millions, if not billions, that it has spent in advertising, you've also got the Gates Foundation. The Gates Foundation uh, has sustained a significant number <clears throat> of what it calls its strategic strategic media partnerships. I believe that it has spent well over $300 million on these partnerships with you know, uh, the New York Times, the BBC, uh, the Atlantic. Um, there, there was a very good piece about this in the Columbia Journalism Review a year or so ago, at which point it was $250 million the Gates Foundation had spent. And since then, I think the number has, has climbed even more. Now, uh, all of this uh, uh, has tended to consolidate the media, to concentrate it uh, 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 to get it to 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 focus only on a particular narrative, and to uh, defame those who would say otherwise. Uh, th- there is uh, also, uh, at the same time, there has also been uh, an ever tightening relationship between the media corporations and the intelligence agencies. This takes us back to the history of the CIA which in the 50s um, started what it called Operation Mockingbird, which was a systematic attempt to you know, get the media on board with, with their uh, program. Uh, and, and, and as Bobby Kennedy again has demonstrated very lucidly in the final chapter of his book on Dr. Fauci, the CIA and the Pentagon are also uh, heavily involved, have been heavily involved in this whole catastrophe from the beginning. And that makes perfect sense because the CIA has always been a major player in every major propaganda drive since World War II. Um, So all of this has uh, helped to uh, prevent the media from doing its proper job of uh, sampling uh, uh, differing opinions, you know, uh, observing all due skepticism toward official claims and so on. 
the media has been dissuaded, has, been, has actually been incapacitated for that kind of proper work by its uh, corporate structure, by its, uh, uh, you know, its, its sources of, of, of revenue. Uh, and also then on top of all this, there has been the use of the world's biggest and most efficient PR firms uh, any thorough indictment of of the media for uh, the lies that it has told um, would have to take account of how the world's, I guess, 10 biggest PR firms have also participated in the propaganda drive from the beginning. Um, and uh, the CDC, for example, has its own extremely ambitious and well-funded um, press outreach apparatus, just like the Pentagon, that they have their own uh, propaganda offices, if you will, you know, that, that they um, provide journalists with uh, material that they can very easily incorporate into their stories. Uh, you know, you have to remember that journalists are often uh, very lazy, you know, <laughs> and uh, are always grateful for having stuff handed them on a platter, you know. And if it has the imprimatur of an official authority on it, you know, if you can say this comes from the CDC, this comes from the Pentagon, uh, all the better, because that confers upon it in their eyes a certain legitimacy that, you know, puts it beyond question. So all these things have served to make the press completely different, in no way like the media system that the framers had in mind when they wrote the First Amendment. There were no journalism schools back then. There was no separate professional class of journalists back then. Journalists were citizens who happened to have enough capital to buy a printing press. That, that was it. They were journalists. Uh, they didn't need press passes or anything like that. And there were no media corporations. You know, it, the idea was unthinkable at the time. So what we have now, you know, whereas the framers and, and um, the American public back then uh, had a democratic media system, we have a um, rapidly anti-democratic media system. Uh, it, it, is, um, it has been mobilized against democracy and uh, to, put it, to put an end to democracy, it seems to me. So we would like to, to ask another question. Sorry, you can proceed. Uh, you can proceed. I will, I will actually continue after you. Uh, okay, I, I, I have uh, come to a pause, so I'm, I'm ready for my next question. Go ahead, Dexter. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Professor. Professor, you've actually mentioned that um, you've placed focus on basically the ethics of journalists. I would like you to tell us what is the basic ethics? Because obviously, if we can understand the basic ethics, it is then that baseline that we can actually use against these journalists in order then to get that indictments. Can you just give us that uh, baseline ethics? Well, that's a very good question. Um... That is a very good question. Um, Maybe the, the Munchen Charter, no? 
it's applicable for journalists. Sorry to to interrupt. Well, yes, you 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 could you could look there. It would be even more compelling to find um, such an ethical code articulated by journalists themselves. Uh, that is something I would like your permission to pursue for your sake. I'd like to work on that um, and help, you know, find some expressions of, you know, such, um, uh, such uh, uh, ethical guidance. Because I, I believe that what has happened is that over the last several years, uh, the institution of journalism like the academy and like the medical establishment uh, has undergone a kind of moral collapse. Um, I think that the media system now is so corrupted by, you know, advertisers revenues and corporate concentration that, uh, you know, in journalism schools, what they now teach essentially is how to get a job in journalism and how to keep that job. Uh, the, the, the journalism students I have taught and I have spoken to tell me that in their journalism classes, they actually do not learn anything about how to run with a story that goes against the grain. Uh, the implication of that is that I don't think their teachers encourage them to do that. You know, the, the, the people who teach in journalism schools tend to be successful journalists or formerly successful journalists. So these are people who have managed to keep their jobs uh, and then retire uh, in sufficiently good odor to be offered a job teaching in a university journalism program. But I, I from what I know personally, I, I really can't think of any journalism student who's ever told me he was taken aback by uh, some kind of statement by one of his professors of the necessity of sticking to your guns and looking for the truth, whatever happens. I don't think that that kind of behavior is rewarded. In, I know that it's not rewarded in the world of journalism. It tends to be punished, you see. So if you were to uh, you know, um, credit any powerful counter-narrative, I mean, it doesn't have to be COVID or masks or PCR tests or any of that. I mean, if you're a journalist working for any of the legacy media, and even for any of the so-called alternative media, you don't dare uh, question the Warren report. You, you know, you don't dare question the official story of John Kennedy's assassination. That was in 1963. You know, you don't dare. You don't dare uh, uh, credit, uh, you know, the most plausible explanations of 9-11. You don't dare. You don't dare not attack those who take those positions because you want to keep your job. And I mean, you know, I, I empathize with, with them. They have to make a living. They have families. They have mortgages and so on. Uh, they're also extremely proud of themselves for being members of that profession. The prestige matters greatly to them. You sacrifice all that in the twinkling of an eye if you join the so-called conspiracy theorists or the anti-vaxxers or the 9-11 truthers, you know, whatever derogatory term you want to use. If you're a journalist, you do not learn what you should have learned on day one of your journalism training, which is that you, 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 you don't dismiss a story because somebody says it's outlandish. You don't dismiss a story because the authorities uh, don't want to hear it or don't want the public to hear it. You do your due diligence 
and you, you follow the evidence wherever it may lead until you come up with the truth. Well, there's no incentive to do that. And indeed, there is a positive disincentive, which is that as the media system has become structurally more concentrated, uh, and as the, its owners have done more and more you know, to cut costs and raise revenues, they have inexorably uh, defunded investigative journalism because investigative journalism is very expensive. You know, to, to have a journalist do a good job with a story that requires time and effort and research, you have to be willing to pay that person, you know, for a long time, for weeks, for months, so that they are free to do the work they need to do. Uh, that's why there's very little in the way of investigative journalism anymore. On the other hand, there's tons of clickbait, you know, there's tons of, of slander of um, the disinformation dozen and that kind of thing. That doesn't cost anything, you know. The fact checkers, um, they work for, you know, relatively little because they don't do any real work, you know. They basically just say, uh, oh, you, you say that the uh, Gates Foundation is responsible for uh, killing and paralyzing countless Indian children with these vaccines. Well, we asked the Gate Foundation and they said it wasn't true. <laughs> I mean, that's the kind of work they do. That, that doesn't deserve any pay, if you see what I mean. But it makes money because propaganda always succeeds by telling people what they want to hear, okay? And what is um, tragically true for everybody, including us, uh, is that all too many people do not want to believe what it is we're discussing is true, right? They don't want to think that's true. And why should they, right? Why should people want to think that the world's leading health authorities would deliberately give the most destructive possible advice? Why would they want to believe that? Why would they want to believe that they have also deliberately withheld the truth about safe and effective early remedies for COVID. People don't want to think they would do that. Just as people have not wanted to think that the government would kill the American president in broad daylight or fly planes into the Twin Towers, it is human nature not to want to believe any of that. So this you know, propaganda, this inexcusable propaganda that we're talking about uh, has succeeded as well as it has because a lot of people don't want to believe the truth about what's going on. And this recalls what Hitler and Goebbels both understood about the big lie, right? Small lies are harder to put across than big lies because people cannot believe they would have the gall to tell lies so big. Do you see what I mean? They couldn't believe it. They wouldn't lie about that. Well, they lied precisely about that because people uh, you know, um, are so credulous. You know, and so eager to believe the best of the authorities. Now, I think that's all breaking down. And I do think we can hasten its breakdown. And this is, again, in deference to Professor Desmet, by continuing to tell the truth. OK, we need to continue to tell the truth. Some of you know uh, that I do this. In fact, I was just doing this when I tuned in today, every, every um, midweek, every week on my Substack. I post a compilation of all the reports of those who have died suddenly over the previous week, okay? Now, let me explain the thinking here. Died suddenly 
once upon a time was obituary code for suicide or a drug overdose. So if you read in an obituary that so-and-so died suddenly or died unexpectedly, you could assume fairly safely that they had killed themselves or, or, or overdosed, right? Well, what was once a fairly rare occurrence is now inescapable. Died suddenly and died unexpectedly are popping up in article after article after article after article. And not only is that unusual, but about half the time, there is no cause of death mentioned. That's unprecedented. The only time in prior history when a death would be reported with no cause mentioned would be when the deceased was very old. Someone was 95. Okay, you don't have to say what they died of because they probably just died of old age, right? Um, now, about half the time, roughly, uh, there is no cause of death reported. Somebody just died prematurely. They just died, no cause of death, or the death is reported to have been caused by a massive heart attack, a blood clot, uh, uh, or, or a cardiac arrest, or a stroke, one of those four cardiological mishaps. And we certainly know by now that those are very common side effects of quote unquote vaccination. And the third category uh, is uh, sudden and aggressive cancers, because we also know, and we have known since Dr. Ryan Cole brought this up, I think over a year ago, that um, uh, COVID vaccination so weakens the immune system that it has made people easy prey to these opportunistic cancers and often very rare cancers. So um, in, in, in doing this, you know, week after week after week, I have seen uh, the inexorable rise of a kind of evidence that it will become increasingly impossible to deny. Okay, now there are a lot of people who are so deeply hypnotized that even when they lose a loved one to a vaccination, they will refuse to see the connection. They will become livid if you suggest a connection, right? They will even say, and this is like the height of insanity, well, it could have been worse. It's a good thing he got the shot. I mean, we're talking about people who died because of the shots could have been worse, right? Mm -hmm. All right. That, as I say, uh, is the case with really deeply hypnotized people. But that is not everybody's experience, you know? What tends to happen over time when people directly encounter a reality that is antithetical to what they've been told by the propaganda, from that point on, the propaganda is doomed, okay? It cannot withstand that contradiction. It can at first while people are still hypnotized, but as time goes on, and as those deaths multiply, as they proliferate ever more and ever more, right? As that happens, it becomes increasingly difficult to sustain the propaganda, to keep driving it into people's heads. And the most effective analogy to this is the war in Vietnam, the US war in Vietnam. Why did that war end when it finally did, okay? That war did not end because people like me decades ago were out there marching for peace. I mean, I'm proud of having done that, but I have no illusions that it helped end the war. I think all it really did was piss a lot of people off. What ended the war, what brought the war to an end was the casualty rate, 
the casualty rate was so high, so many Americans had lost someone or knew someone who lost someone to that meat grinder of a war that they were not listening anymore. They did not want the war to go on. They had lost all respect for the government and for the military, right? And it was over. And that was a truth, you know, that ever rising casualty rate was a truth that no one could hide, okay? Now this horror, this what I call Holocaust 2.0, right? This inexplicit mass murder of people all over the world. I mean, it is really stunning to look at these compilations, uh, which I, 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 I'm doing with increasing difficulty because there are so many of them. But um, what the press has been doing uh, predictably throughout this uh, horrendous spike in sudden deaths has been making every effort to normalize it, has been finding other explanations for it. And they're, they're ridiculous explanations, you know, and I, I read a list of them to Reiner and Vivian when we last spoke, you know, referees whistles, pizza margarita, hot weather, cold weather, environmental noise, you know? I mean, it's it would be funny if it weren't so hideous, right? Now, what we're talking about here <clears throat> is a very carefully planned propaganda exercise because those media outlets that are headlining those <laughs> reasons why people are dying suddenly, what they're doing is reporting on the release of some new medical study, okay? So this means that a, that a research team at a university had to do a study proving that referees' whistles are killing all those soccer players, right? Or hot weather or cold weather, right? Some research team at some university had to have done that study, which means that that study had to have been funded by somebody long since with this in mind, so that the media could then take the headline from the study and run the article as a way to make people think, well, it couldn't have been the vaccine, right? ABV, anything but the vaccine. You know, that, that, that's an acronym that my research team is now using, ABV. It's not the vaccine, it's not killing people. Just because ever more people were dropping dead, including children keeling over with massive heart attacks, even though this has only started since the vaccination rollout began, the vaccination rollout has nothing to do with it, okay? That strikes me as um, uh, a sign of, of profound cul culpability, right? They, 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 someone at some level is knowingly orchestrating the production of these ridiculous theories in order to get people not to see what's happening right before their eyes. Because the those who are driving this catastrophe do not want people to come to snap out of it the way the American people eventually snapped out of their belief in the Vietnam War. Um, could I Professor just like what, one, add one thing? Uh, here in Germany, we have the, the press codex which is a um, you know a set of regulations that the um, journalists um, sort of self um, at uh, um, you know um, uh, what you call this um, at high to 
self-regulate. Yeah, yeah self-regulating. And there, for instance, uh, we have like a regulation where, you know, the, the press should not um, attack the human dignity of the person that they report about. And I mean, we see so many things where they um, are, you know, writing, um, you know, insults and saying these people are Nazis or whatever, if you have, if you're questioning the corona narrative. I mean, all these things are just not in line with the press codex. And I'm sure this exists on an international level and must exist like for every country as well. So this is, I mean, of course, it's not binding in the sense that you could could go to court for that. But I mean, at least it shows like what they should um, re really live by, you know, the, the set of rules, self-given uh, rules they should live by and sort of the um, ethics. And but they're just not doing this. Yeah, I think that's a very good idea. Um, the regulation of the press in the United States is non-existent, you know, and 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 when there was press regulation, uh, it 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 mainly, well, I think it, it referred entirely to broadcast news, to TV and radio, um, and that's a very complicated thing that I won't get into. But all, all they all they stressed uh, in those regulations was the civic obligation of station owners. They had to do a certain amount of public interest programming. They had to do a certain amount of um, educational programming. They had to cover elections. You know, they had to do those kinds of things. They had to give uh, some airtime to uh, churches, to religions. You know, uh, anyway, on the whole, it was it was kind of a good thing the, the, those regulations. But over the decades, they've been uh, watered down to the point of non-existence. Uh, the only thing that they must do, this is it sounds like a joke, but it's not is uh, three hours per week of commercial children's programming. That's that's the thing they have to do, it has to be commercial children's programming. So, you know, yeah. But I think that that uh, 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 different kinds of, of global bodies and national organizations will certainly have um, uh, 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 ethical codes that you can use in making your case against the outlets that have so egregiously violated them. Professor Miller, yes. um, I'm sorry to interrupt Virginie, um, but two questions. Um, is it an oversimplification or is it correct to say that the same people who are behind this drive for vaccination, because that in my view is uh, their first and foremost priority, not the mass mandates, not the social distancing, but that the same people who are behind this drive for vaccination own or and or control the pharmaceutical, the tech industry, and of course, the media through their uh, financial industry. Is that an oversimplification or is it correct? I think it's correct. Um, you know, I, I, it, it would probably take further work, you know, to nail it down with dead certainty. But uh, mm. I, I believe that they are the same uh, perpetrators, yes. Okay, thank you. And the second question is um, the way that they're acting right now, in particular when it comes not to just propaganda, but to the other side of propaganda, censorship, is that not ultimately, and I think that's what you said, self-defeating or even self-destructive? Are we not now seeing a shift in the population, in the public, in the general public, uh, trying to get their information no longer from the mainstream media, but turning to the alternative media. Yes, this is demonstrably true. This was true, uh, particularly, this was particularly notable 
when uh, Joe Rogan uh, went up against CNN uh, for uh, lying mm -hmm. about what he had done, you know, his use of ivermectin. Uh, CNN was absolutely humiliated in that confrontation because uh, the numbers said it all. Uh, Rogan's shows, as I said, had at least 12 million viewers per broadcast and a much higher number of viewers for certain broadcasts that had everything to do with questioning the COVID narrative. So, um, you know, uh, tens of millions of Americans, or maybe just people globally, saw him interview Malone, saw him interview McCullough. Uh, how many viewers does CNN have on a given evening? They have under a million, okay? Hmm. So there's no contest there. I mean, we, we tend to continue to think mistakenly that the so-called legacy media still exert the same kind of power that they exerted before. We look at a copy of the New York Times and it looks like the New York Times. It has the same famous font, you know, all the news that's fit to print. It looks like the Times, calls itself the New York Times. Uh, CNN, uh, this is CNN, you know, uh, with that kind of august voice and all that, you know, uh, advertising self-importance. All of that, uh, you know, the very familiarity of those names and the prestige that has long attached to them prevent us from recognizing that they are they are pumping out an extremely eccentric narrative that very few people actually believe, you see? Um, so really we have a tremendous advantage over them. It's just that those, that their names uh, are enough to uh, perpetuate the spell that their most loyal readers and viewers are under, see? You say the New York Times, uh, people over a certain age will feel a, a, a surge of reverence for the institution. Uh, you know, that's just because they're used to it. I mean, you're talking to somebody who wrote for the Times, right? I wrote four or five op-eds for the Times in my in my day before I was, uh, you know, cast into the outer darkness as a conspiracy theorist. Uh, but I understand how people feel about the Times. I understand the trust that they put in it. Uh, what they have to be made to do uh, or urged to do or encouraged to do is what we can do only by, again, telling the truth as often as possible. They have to come to see that the media system they have long completely trusted has been lying to them uh, with astonishing brazenness and dishonesty, you know, and refusing to retract mistaken claims. I mean, if, if you should decide to focus on the New York Times per se, as I would love to see you do, you know, you might note their utter refusal ever to retract anything, even when you demonstrate to them, you know, beyond dispute that it's false. Bobby Kennedy tells this story about um, Hank Aaron. You know, when Hank Aaron died, Hank Aaron died, I think 17 days after he got injected, right? This legendary uh, baseball player, beloved baseball player. He died and, and he had been persuaded to get the shot very publicly in order to encourage other African-Americans to get the shot because African-Americans have been a particular target of the vaccinators because of their uh, famed, or I should say their notorious vaccine hesitancy. So there has been a particular push, it's worth your noting, a particular push to get as many black people in particular uh, vaccinated or injected uh, precisely because they are uh, understandably uh, leery of, um, you know, government medical programs because of 
the atrocious history of their mistreatment by white doctors in the United States. So they have been vaccine hesitant for a reason. Therefore, the, the government and the media and Big Pharma and Dr. Fauci have all done their damnedest, you know, to get the um, to to seduce black people into getting the shots. Right. And the propaganda attacking those who track these deaths has been particularly uh, virulent. So um, Bobby Kennedy at one point said publicly that that um, Hank Aaron had been vaccinated 17 days before his death. Uh, he was perfectly healthy. I mean, he was quite old. He was in his 80s, but he was perfectly healthy. Then he just died. No cause was given, right? And uh, the New York Times uh, jeered this claim of Bobby Kennedy's actually claiming that there had been an autopsy which proved that uh, it wasn't the shot that, that killed him, okay? That was a lie. Uh, Bobby Kennedy contacted Aaron's family and asked them, and they told him that he didn't. there was no autopsy. The Times just made this up. And yet, you know, having been faced with this by Bobby, uh, they, didn't do, they didn't say anything about it. Now, I, I can't think of any code of journalistic ethics that would say that that's okay. You know, if you make a mistake, uh, you, you, you report that immediately and you correct it. That, that's, that's ethical behavior. That's certainly what I do, you know, in my modest uh, forums like Substack, but the Times doesn't, you know. Their devotion to the maintenance of the narrative is, is total, and that's the way they all operate. Thank you very much, Professor Miller. Um, Virginie, you, I think you wanted to ask a question. Yes, thank you. Professor, people have the right to be informed and this principle includes the contradictory principle. As you said earlier, the contradictory principle was largely, largely developed during antiquity and it's a principle to be respected in the public area when we are in a real democracy. In conclusion, do you acquire the conviction that the mass media have intentionally violated the right of the people to be properly informed, that in a sense, they are co-responsible for the crimes against humanity currently being committed by the six alleged perpetrators? Yes, I couldn't agree more. Uh, their, their failure or refusal to um, take due notice of uh, various facts that complicate the official narrative is has been uh, inex inexcusable. There is no possible way to justify their um, continuing even now to parrot the claim that these so-called vaccines are safe and effective. They are continuing to urge people, even during the you know, supervailing hysteria over Ukraine, in the background, there's this constant thrumming persistence of you know, selling vaccination, urging people to get vaccinated, happily reporting that you know, the, the, the FDA has now approved uh, using this vaccine on children these ages. You know? They are still doing it. Um, so yeah, uh, I, I think that they are definitely co-responsible. You know, it is, again, I wanna repeat this, this profession has a special obligation to um, 
honor its ideals because this is the institution that protects us from overweening executive authority. And it is this profession that is supposed to protect us from a corporate malfeasance, right? That's why we tend still, uh, when we're not thinking about it too hard, to regard journalism as a kind of heroic profession. You know, we think of Woodward and Bernstein, we think of Aaron Brockovich, we think of, you know, plucky investigative reporters or other kinds of investigators bringing down corporate titans for poisoning people. This is a very, you know, popular genre. Uh, but the fact is that that um, over these last few years, we have seen that the journalism has basically gone over to the enemy. And as I said, uh, you know, because of their uh, commercial dependency on, on um, corporations over the many decades, they've, they've actually been aligned with the enemy for a very long time. We have valued journalism above all over the last, say, 50 years for its exceptions. We value it for its exceptional reporters. We value it for those who have been brave enough to, uh, you know, leave the reservation and report truths that some powers might not like, right? What we've seen then is not so much um, a sudden total corruption of the media as we have seen a general disappearance of those exceptions. As I said before, the alternative press that was uh, constituted such an exception. It's no longer exceptional, right? It's impossible to tell from uh, you know the TV networks and so on. Uh, but I can even think of a number of formerly plucky and um, sensible and devoted journalists who have uh, completely fallen for this narrative. You see, this propaganda narrative has succeeded in, in a way that prior propaganda drives have not. You know, really for a long, long time, uh, the enemy uh, 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 as defined by propaganda, uh, the enemy has often been likened to a virus been likened to a disease. Certainly the Jews were you know, likened to disease by the Nazis and were also defined as vectors of disease by the Nazis, vectors of typhus, vectors of tuberculosis, vectors of syphilis, right? Uh, uh, during the Cold War, communism was often invoked as a kind of contagion. That's what the domino theory was based on. And when he testified before Congress, J. Edgar Hoover would make that explicit. He would talk about communism as, as you know, uh, coming to healthy people from a kind of infected source. The same thing happened during the war on terror. The terrorism was something that spread contagion-like from mosques or from prisons where there were a lot of um, black converts to Islam, right? But this time we have a propaganda drive in which the enemy is a virus. And this has succeeded in, in terrifying the wits out of countless educated and sophisticated people, including a, a number of really good journalists. So it has, it has done uh, a, a particular kind of harm that we have really uh, never seen before. Although I, I have to qualify this just slightly for a moment by noting, as Bobby Kennedy teaches us in his book you know, about Fauci, that the HIV AIDS moment was a kind of dress rehearsal for what we're living through now. Because there, anyone who argued was, was professionally destroyed, 
There you had a disease that you did not know you had from any symptoms. You would know you had it because of a PCR test. It was the first time it was used. And then as, as now, they used the panic over HIV AIDS, not only to keep people at a distance from each other, because it, it did serve that purpose, but um, also to get people taking uh, a lethal drug, AZT, uh, a chemotherapeutic drug that uh, killed roughly 300,000 gay men, many of them quite famous gay men, you know, uh, um, Rudolf Nureyev and Arthur Ashe and others, Keith Haring, they actually were poisoned to death by AZT, but then they were reported to have died of AIDS, right? In this case, the panic has been deployed deliberately to get everybody injected. And it's true, it's not the masks, it's not the social distancing. Those things also served to get people vaccinated, right? The masks were used to keep people uh, under a kind of house arrest uh, uh, so that they would clamor to be injected and thereby liberated from the masking world, you see. But um, in this case, uh, again, Dr. Fauci is, is a key perpetrator in both these episodes. Um, again, it, it, is, it is to foist a, a toxic product on us with lethal, lethal consequences that they, have, that they have promoted this narrative all along. Thank you, Professor. Professor, Professor Miller, I don't want to keep you um, any longer, but I do have one more question. Um, sure. And I don't want anyone else to be kept from asking questions, of course. But you mentioned Noam Chomsky. Um, he's a, I guess you could say, a one of the best known, if not the best known philosopher in this country. Uh, his counterpart in Germany is uh, Jürgen Habermas, that's his name. Right. But in this pandemic, or rather plandemic, uh, as is our preliminary finding, we find both of them on the wrong side of the fence. What is wrong with them? What made them? Is, did they change or have they always been like this? Has somebody influenced them? What happened? Well, I'm smiling because this is something I've thought and spoken about a lot. I mean, I, I know Chomsky. Um, and so I, I, I have, you know, a certain authority for what I'm saying. Um, when he came out with those statements about the, the unvaccinated, that they should be detained. And uh, as for their food supply, that's their problem. I mean, I, I found that as shocking as everybody else did. Uh, but the more I thought about it, the more I realized that he has, for whatever reason, he has um, served some dubious purposes for a very long time. Now, now, as I say, I know him. I have taught some of his books in my courses. Uh, you know, I've taught The Manufacture of Consent, which is a book everybody reads about propaganda. So I was all the more staggered when he came out with all that COVID propaganda himself. And I wanted to say, well, he's 93, you know, maybe he's a bit demented. But um, there's this to say about his career. Um, he's done a lot of really excellent work on a number of um, important subjects. However, those subjects on which Chomsky has done his most important work have all been subjects that matter only to the left. 
So Chomsky has been very good on East Timor, for example, and that is an important story. Uh, you know, atrocious things happened there. The major media blacked those atrocities out. Chomsky did not, and that's to his credit. But East Timor doesn't really matter to many people outside the left or did not at the time, right? Now, there have been other uh, uh, subjects that actually have mattered to the entire population. Subjects, therefore, around which a really honest investigation had the potential to stoke widespread resistance. And I'm speaking here of the Kennedy assassination. I'm speaking of the assassination of Martin Luther King. I'm speaking of 9-11. And I'm speaking of the theft of the 2000 and 2004 elections by Bush Cheney. And, and that last has been a kind of specialty of mine I wrote a whole book on the theft of that election and have done other work on election theft generally. We won't even get into the last election because that's a whole different thing, other than to say that it's also a crime to question that narrative, right? You're, you're a terrorist if you actually argue that there's evidence that Biden didn't really win. Uh, well, at any rate, um, on all those subjects, Noam Chomsky has been outspokenly dismissive even derisive. He has said, for example, about Kennedy's assassination, and there's a video of this, said it to some uh, audience of students abroad somewhere. He said, maybe there was a conspiracy to kill John Kennedy, but if there was, who cares? People get killed every day. What difference does it make if one is president of the United States? Now, he makes that argument on the basis of a lot of just plain wrong claims about Kennedy's position on the Vietnam War. OK, we won't get into that. The fact of the matter is that um, I have a copy of a book, a very good book about the murder of Fred Hampton, who was the chairman of the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party and whom the FBI had killed uh, by the Chicago police in 1969. There's a big Hollywood movie about it that came out two years ago called Judas and the Black Messiah. And if I may, I recommend that movie strongly to you because it's very good. It's very accurate. Tells the story of why they killed Hampton. Hampton was too radical, etc. Well, on the cover of that book, in my possession, it's called The Assassination of Fred Hampton. There is a blurb by Noam Chomsky. So somehow Noam Chomsky seems to think that that murder is important that that murder is worth investigating, but not the murder of John Kennedy, okay? Nor the murder of Martin Luther King, nor 9-11. He is extremely contemptuous of anyone who argues uh, against the official narrative of 9-11. And with election theft, I, I had an exchange with him by email trying to get him to face the fact that there is overwhelming evidence that those elections were stolen and his response was, well, it doesn't matter if they were. Because, you know, he sees the two political parties as one party. It doesn't matter which one wins. I sort of take that point. I see what he means. But the fact is that if he is such an important radical leftist intellectual, he should have more respect for the will of the people than that. If, if, if a majority votes for a given candidate, um, you know, that candidate should be declared the winner. And I say this, even though in the 2004 election, I did not support the Democrat or the Republican, right? I was concerned about the theft of that election because I believe in electoral democracy. 
the fact that Noam Chomsky has consistently um, laughed off those extremely significant episodes and poo-pooed any talk about the likely conspiracy behind them tells me, and this is an answer to your question, Reiner, that there has always been something wrong with him, okay? There's been something off about him. Uh, so that it isn't really that surprising that he would now be uh, uh, demonizing those who won't get the shot. Uh, nor, I suppose, is it surprising, although it kind of turns my stomach, that he is talking about the urgent need for what he calls vaccine equity, that somehow we need to get more people in the third world vaccinated, right? We need to get the Palestinians vaccinated. We need to get the indigenous peoples in Canada and Australia vaccinated. I mean, has he talked to any of those people? I mean, the ones I've talked to don't want to get the shot, right? But he thinks they should. But in that way, he is like pretty much the entire left. Um, it, it is really staggering. And um, whether it has anything to do with his you know, uh, maybe leading a double life of some kind, or whether it's simply another indication that this propaganda drive is an unprecedented masterpiece, I can't really say. That was very, very interesting. Thank you very much, Professor Miller. Sure. Um, any other questions? Uh, Anna, Virginie, uh, Deepali, Dexter, Vivian? I, I have one, Reiner. Thank you. Uh, it was a very interesting presentation. Thank you very much. One of the things that I was struck by uh, Professor Miller was the uh, statement that you made about the moral collapse amongst journalists. And it, it feels to me as if this moral collapse is something that's happening uh, endemically everywhere uh, in terms of uh, the medical system, the judicial systems, uh, journalism is just another example. And, and it also struck me that it seems that a lot of the, what we now call alt journalism, but you said it's like alt, alt journalism, seems to be uh, by a lot of people who claim to be God-led or Christian or faith-based. Uh, do you find that the journalism is dividing almost along spiritual battle lines in some way, uh, in terms of comparing the mainstream media type of approach versus those who have uh, sprung up, it seems like, not all of them have sprung up, but many that have sprung up certainly in the last couple of years. Yeah, there's no question about it. Um, I have found, and again, I want to stress this, you know, all my life I identified as being on the left, right? Came out of the campus left of the 60s and, and you know, still believe in many of the same things I believed in then. And I, I, I therefore can't recognize what's now called the left. It, it, it is unrecognizable to me. And I guess if we use the phrase sweepingly enough, by it we mean, you know, Noam Chomsky and Amy Goodman and Michael Moore on the left left, all the way through the Democratic Party, uh, which I guess sees itself as the left, to corporate outlets like MSNBC and the New York Times. That entire left has become, to me, uh, a kind of a grotesque um, betrayal of everything that the left I remember stood for. And 
I have found in this position that I uh, it is much, much easier to talk to uh, people on the so-called right. Uh, it's much easier to talk to religious people. Uh, it's much easier to talk to libertarians, certainly. It's much easier to talk to people who are advantaged by a certain skepticism towards state power. And the left has never been sufficiently uh, leery of state power, um, you know. I mean, some people on the left have been, you know, there was a kind of anarchistic spirit to the left, uh, you know, when I was a kid, we certainly didn't believe in censorship or anything like that. Now the left seems to be all about censorship. But um, in as much as this really is, uh, how am I going to put this? You know, there are a lot of people out there arguing about the question of whether the virus exists or not. I'm sure you've heard this a million times, right? There are people who claim that there is no virus and some of them are extremely convincing. You know, Tom Cowan, Andy Kaufman, et cetera, John Rappaport. And then there are those who I no less convincingly argue that there is a virus. Those who believe there is no virus tend to say, we're not going to get out of this thing until everybody understands the germ theory is a hoax and the virologists are all lying to us. I think that's untrue. I don't think it makes that much of a difference to the ending of this nightmare, whether we say, you know, they made up the claim that it was a virus or whether we say there was a virus, but they radically exaggerated its lethality, right? It doesn't make any difference what, which of those two things people believe. What does make a difference, what must happen, and it's not going to be easy to make it happen, is that people have to recognize the fact that all the authorities they have trusted all this time are actually malevolent. There is malevolence driving this. You cannot, you cannot, people will not wake up until they face that. To the extent that they, keep kind of haven in their minds for these interests and cherish the illusion that these interests mean well somehow, right? Uh, as long as they cling to that illusion, they will not snap out of it. Their snapping out of it depends on their facing the evil of what's been done to them. Just as children who are victimized and badly damaged by parental abuse have to confront that fact before they can heal, you know, as any therapist will tell you. It's really very similar. So it is not surprising that LifeSite News, for example, does such good work on all this. You know, it's a Catholic outlet because, you know, not only because they don't just share the general assumptions of the so-called left, but also because what we're witnessing, among other things now, we haven't spoken about this at all, is, is, a, is, a, real, is a, a genuine spiritual attack on religion, or I should say the traditional religions. I mean, I, I, you know, people have argued that the, the, the types driving this are Satanists, and I, I, I would once have laughed at that, <laughs> but I don't anymore. You know, there, there's something about the per utter perverseness of what they're doing. Uh, the, 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 the intentness with which they are going after children who don't even need to be vaccinated against this disease. I can't come up with any other way to think about it than that. 
And I have been profoundly influenced myself spiritually and, uh, because of all this. So um, it, it is no mystery to me that, that, that so much uh, good work is done by people of faith uh, because I think they have a, a much firmer grasp of what's at stake here and, and of what's really going on than people like my colleagues at NYU, for example. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. So if, Thank you. If no uh, one Marcus, has any questions. Was... So if we're yeah, done with the questions. Anna, you go. We'll, we'll have... Um, uh, Judge Louis introduce our next witness, but thank you so much, Mark. This was very, very elusive, very, very important. Directly ties in with uh, uh, Matthias Desmond's testimony. It uh, makes makes the whole thing become even clearer to us. I believe that's thank great. you I'm very, very much. You're welcome, and I'm I'm always here. So thank you for inviting me. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Professor. Thank you. Well, I, I announce now the next expert, Professor Ulrich Kammerer from Würzburg University, as the key witness for the fact that PCR testing created <clears throat> cases which served for, as the basis for announcing the public health emergency international, of international concern, which was needed for them to use untested experimental drugs on people. Professor. So, well, good evening. Um, I have prepared a short presentation on two, I think, most important points to be added to the last testimonial. So uh, what we have learned from the PCR testing and from the disease from Wuhan and from the first cases, because um, there are very good publications which um, are important for any uh, legal aspects. So if it's possible, I can um, share my screen. So, and I hope you can see the documents I will hand out to you um, via email. Um, so, um, the lessons from Wuhan. So, Wuhan is the start of all um, the situation, so the official start of the situation. And there are some publications which I think are of utmost importance because they make the knowledge very clear, which we have now. So the first lesson from Wuhan, from a very large um, study with 10 million persons investigated for um, SARS-CoV-2 RNA by RT-PCR was published in Nature Communications. And the main message from this is that there's neither asymptomatic infections nor infectivity, or let's say transmissibility from persons without clinical symptoms. And this is major quotes from these publications that they tested persons which were positive in RT-PCR. And maybe I should add, they perform their own Chinese um, first PCR, which was um, created earlier than the um, WHO protocol by Common and Rosten. And this PCR is much better in the design. 
And so they found only 300 out of 10 million residents being positive, which um, corresponds to 0.003%. So they have a very um, clear testing strategy with very good controls and I guess very well working labs without any contaminations and everything. And they compared the results of those 300 positive cases with cell culture and always found that the cultures as a um, information about a replication competent virus were negative. So none of the persons has a replication competent virus. And then none of the detected positive cases or their close contacts became symptomatic or ne nearly confirmed this COVID-19 during the isolation period. So there was no disease and no transmission of the disease of PCR positive only persons in this very, very large 10 million cohorts. And uh, one of the results is, or the most important result is, that this um, indicates that asymptomatic positive cases detected in this study were unlikely to be infectious. And so if we can rule out from 10 million persons to the rest of the world, because it is a really large um, trial, then this uh, confirms that positive PCR cases without any symptoms, without uh, the proof of replication competent viruses do not transfer the disease to another persons. And therefore, there is no reason to isolate them from other persons to um, lock them uh, back or something like this. Interestingly, the Chinese scientists accepted a CT of up to 35 as positive in this tribe and still had this very good results. From another um, publication from uh, the lesson from Wuhan, which is published in uh, Lancet, um, there it is shown that fatal cases indeed can occur, let me say, like in all other viral pneumonias, but predominantly in older patients with pre-existing severe comorbidities. So this was very uh, well known very early in the situation uh, because they did an investigation in 99 hospitalized pneumonia patients during the um, uh, first wave in Wuhan and uh, had this uh, finding and conclusion which is shown in this publication. So um, uh, the third most important, I think, um, lesson from Wuhan is um, often it is asked, where does the influenza go? So, and here it is. The majority of COVID-19 patients had a co-infection with influenza viruses. So it, it's often not only one virus in a person, but it's two or even more viruses, which can be found if you search for it in a, in a patient which, which have has typical symptoms of a common flu of an influenza. And here in this publication, again from Wuhan, they showed that um, only 42 of those patients with typical symptoms had SARS-CoV-2 only, and that 49.8, so 50% uh, percent had influenza type A, 
in addition, so two viruses. And so you can't decide if the symptoms, if pneumonia, if fever, if everything comes from the SARS-CoV-2 virus or from the influenza virus. And a minority, um, but still 7.5% had uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus in combination with influenza type B. And interestingly, those were the patients which had the worst outcome. So you can, um, maybe it's allowed to say that the double infection with SARS-CoV-2 and influenza type B in this cohort from Wuhan, this was the patients which had the most problems with their disease. So um, if you search only for SARS-CoV-2, you would have 100% COVID-19 patients. But if you search in addition for other viruses, you will find a pleiotropic pattern of different viruses in those patients. And what did they have? They all had pneumonia and the serious cases have pneumonia and this is a situation where they die from. And that pneumonia is nothing special for SARS-CoV-2 virus or other coronaviruses is shown here in another publication it has nothing to do now with um, uh, the current COVID situation because it's from 2011 from Lancet, but there has nothing changed. This is a whole list of viruses which can induce pneumonia and the same situation as SARS-CoV-2 can induce. This is a typical um, age-related um, incidence of pneumonia, uh, which is induced by those different viruses. So, and here you always see that the old aged persons, this is a person which have a high risk of getting pneumonia. And so even here, there's nothing special and nothing new with this SARS-CoV-2 virus because it's very well known for all the other respiratory viruses as well. So, and to get this into a relation, so there's every year in 2011, and it's still in even more, about 200 million cases of viral community acquired pneumonia occur every year and 100 million in children. So um, viral pneumonia is not a rare disease as they told us and not a rare disease by this killer virus so-called SARS-CoV-2, but it's a very common situation in viral uh, respiratory diseases. Uh, and here as a result of this publication is um, in a third of cases, um, particular influenza viruses, rhinoviruses. So the rhinoviruses are the common uh, cold viruses. So even they can induce fatal pneumonia cases and nobody even has a problem with this and all those types of coronaviruses. And here they also express that dual viral infections are common. And often, especially in children, they have viral bacterial co-infections. So co-infections like those um, combinations of SARS-CoV-2 and influenza viruses uh, in this Wuhan cohort, they are well known for, 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 for years and years and published. So there's nothing new with this situation from the beginning on. And the symptoms you normally have with um, COVID-19, so the disease COVID-19, if you have an, um, really an infection with SARS-CoV-2, this is published here. Um, this is a typical non-specific symptoms presented in COVID-19. And those authors say 
um, um, analyze them as headache, rhinorrhea, myalgia, and sore throat. And they express that this should lead physicians to clinic, clinically suspect influenza or common cold. And that's the situation. The SARS-CoV-2 completely fits in this respiratory viruses. So there's nothing special. So this is a typical symptoms of respiratory viruses. So rhinoviruses, adenoviruses, coronaviruses, um, all the other viruses, and here influenza. And if you see those colors, there's no difference. So if a clinician has a patient which, which has uh, fever and has uh, sneezing and has dyspnea, so without doing a testing, they all look the same. So, and if you don't do a PCR testing for SARS-CoV-2 only, and if you do a multiplex testing, you would be surprised how many of those other viruses could be found. Because every year, and this is the situation, every year in the winter season, you have all those viruses in parallel in the population. So you have the rhinoviruses, you have the influenza viruses, you have the respiratory syncytial virus, you have the coronaviruses, and you have other viruses. And it's only a year-to-year -year little difference in the percentage of the virus, but they, there's no year where none of those viruses is, is present and makes the persons ill. So um, this is a situation, and I think nearly all of the scientists and all of the biologists and all of the especially clinical um, treating medical doctors know this and should have known this, but they did not even think about it because, as we've heard, they all were so afraid of this so-called very new, very dangerous virus that they missed to compare the, what they see in the clinic situation and what they see in the lab to all the years before. And if they could have stood back um, uh, and just analyzed the data, then they would have noticed very early that there's nothing special. And um, a lesson from Bavaria, because the, in Middle Europe, the um, COVID cases started here in Bavaria, um, there's a publication which I want to point out that they described all the points we have to we had discussed already for the PCR that samples that contained less than 10 to the six copies per ml or per sample this is an original quote never yielded an isolate so that you need a remarkable amount of PCR or of copies in the starting samples that this patient's sample can be correlated to an virus isolate, which is successful. They quote that their study is limited in that no severe cases were observed. So um, this is the first um, case here in Germany where this um, traveling um, businesswoman from China was on a meeting in a Bavarian company. And uh, this was the basis for several publications because they um, in initially thought on, and published that this Chinese woman had no symptoms, which in the end was not correct because she had symptoms. And this is published by the same group. 
And she took uh, paracetamol and other typical uh, drugs um, to treat their common cold symptoms. Um, and the interesting thing is that all persons which were found PCR positive in correlation to this patient zero, they had only very mild symptoms. And at this point, all the authors should have known that young persons like in Wuhan, which have no comorbidities, were not of risk um, to have a severe situation with this new virus. And they found it only in the upper respiratory tract in those patients. So again, this is a normal virus which induces common colds in immunocompetent persons and can induce severe and even deadly um, pneumonia in um, patients without a good immune system with a lot of comorbidities and which were seriously ill. So, and an important thing leading to the PCR is they very early conducted a P PCR test, which allowed to identify so-called viral subgenomic mRNA. And this is important because this viral subgenomic, subgenomic mRNA um, is transcribed only in infected cells. So they were able to produce a PCR, which can differentiate between a replication competent virus in the sample from the patient and the typical RT-PCR. And why is this so important? Because look on the authors, and this is the two persons creating the WHO protocol, which produced so many problems. And they already were the second, first, and the second senior authors on this Nature publication, where they explicitly expressed that they had to construct a special RT-PCR to identify the difference between replication-competent virus in a sample and viral-only RNA in a sample. So they knew it. They knew very early about the viral load, which was 10 to the 6 copies per sample, which you had at least to have in a sample to correlate to any possible infection activity, despite all the other problems which I have shown you in the last um, testimonial that the PCR never can prove um, that this virus is even replication competent, independent of this PCR, because this PCR can show you the subgenomic RNA, but still only the RNA. It could fail to produce viral um, variants, so the, the, the virus bodies still. So they knew that the patients had only mild common cold-like symptoms. And this is a PCR I have expectedly shown. But the PCR practice, the WHO protocols, all the companies' protocols, all the commercial kits were not corrected. And this was very early in 1st of March was this publication submitted. And this patient's cases were from January 23 to 27. So at the very, very first days of the um, uh, COVID-19 so-called pandemic in Europe, the main players of the PCR knew that this is a disease which is not so severe for the general public um, people, 
and that they had to adapt this PCR. This is, I think, very important. So again, to remind you, what can a PCR do? A PCR um, is a powerful, highly sensitive molecular laboratory method to amplify DNA from small amounts, large detectable amounts. So for maybe for all those I which do not know what how powerful it is, if you have one needle in a haystack, the PCR um, copies this needle so many times that you have a large stack of needles, which then is clearly visible in this haystack. So this is the principle, and this is a very perfect tool of the PCR. Um, but um, the problem is it's not a good idea, as I told in my last testimonial, for common cold virus infections. And so without the PCR testing, all years before corona, as I have shown you by the symptoms, all patients with the typical symptoms were either described as influenza without testing the influenza virus, because nobody tested all patients which have influenza symptoms, so the more severe cases with higher fever as influenza, but only very, my, very few cases were indeed tested for the influenza virus. So the influenza could have been also coronaviruses, um, respiratory syncytial viruses, other viruses. And in mild diseases, it was always called common cold. So um, without PCR testing, um, we even would have known that the SARS-CoV-2 is a special virus. It would have been just brought in with the other coronaviruses. So, and according to the PCR, I want to go into detail, but I think what we really should know is that even Anthony Fauci, the main player, gave a crucial statement about the PCR test, um, that it is not able to do what we always, or not we, but what um, the public thought that it can say anything about infectivity. And we have this as a short video clip, which um, I will show uh, then. And before we go to the Anthony Fauci testimonial, um, another very important um, testimonial is given by Marion Kruppmanns. Marion Kruppmanns is co-author of Drosten. Marion Kruppmanns had a long time of research with the Wuhan Laboratory of uh, Virus Research. And she is an expert advisor to the WHO and one of the central virologists. And um, very early, in, or not very early, but in uh, um, November 2020, she was in a podcast in a Dutch um, radio station. And in this podcast, um, the um, um, moderator asked her, what about the PCR? Does this really, really is a good situation? And he has heard that it is not able to show if there is a replication competent virus. And her answer was exactly. And that's also true because the PCR shows that you have the viral RNA with you. This is what I always told you. It can only show the genetic information, not the whole virus, because uh, that's literally what PCR does. And whether that RNA is in a virus particle that is still intact and also infectious, 
or whether it's just residual RNA that can, can be detected long after infection, there is no way to distinguish between the two. Though even Mayon Kopman, she is on the comment roster, she's on the WHO protocol, she is one of the most important coronavirus research um, experts in the world. She uh, expressed this explicitly that the PCR can't show if there is an intake and replication competent virus. So this is an important European testimonial. We have more. We have even um, uh, Christian Drosten who uh, said ex uh, exactly the same, but it's in German. And now we have this Anthony Fauci, and I hope the, um, um, she can include this if I um, close my monitor, and I think then maybe they can play this short video clip. Well, PCR doesn't measure replication competent virus. It measures viral particles, nucleic acid. So in other words, I could be infected, have cleared the replication competent virus from me, but I can continue to be positive with a PCR for several days after recovering and not being transmissible at all. So although a PCR is good to tell you, if you have been, if my, am I infected? Yes, I am infected. But the very fact that it's positive for, as the CDC director said, for several days and even weeks later, it doesn't give you any indication of whether or not you're transmissible. And I think that's the, the understandable confusion that people have about testing. Testing saying whether you're infected or not versus are you infected plus transmissible. The only way you could tell if it's transmissible, if you can show that there really is live replication virus in you, and the tests don't measure that. They measure the presence or absence of not of the virus. Right. And the virus could be dead, inactive virus that doesn't transmit. So it's entirely understandable why people can get confused over that. And that's the reason why I'm here yeah. trying to explain it to people to hopefully clarify yeah. that. So I think that's the most important point, what he told in a very large um, American um, broadcast. So um, the PCR, as I showed in my last testimonial, is not able to show if a person can transfer a sick-making virus to another person. So that is I indeed the point. No. Yes, Ulrike, that is the point. I know he pointed it out. That is why people are confused. I am convinced at this point that the confusion has been created deliberately. Uh, that's why I think it is. it needs to be made very clear that a PCR test alone cannot tell us anything about infections in the sense of being someone being contagious. It can tell you that you have survived I don't know, the common cold or the flu or maybe even a corona infection, if that corona was part of the common flu, maybe. But it cannot tell you but by finding the fragments from this immune system's fight against the common cold or, or some other um, respiratory disease. It cannot tell you 
that this is still live and uh, able to replicate and um, infect other people. Is that correct? Well, a virus per definition can never be alive because being alive mm -hmm. by definition needs to have a metabolism and viruses are without own metabolism. They are clearly, let's say, a type of parasites because they, they need always living cells to use their um, uh, metabolism to be replicated. But they um, only viruses which are complete, which have their intact complete genome, which have all their information and which can um, go into a cell and the cell can replicate it, so, so copy it and then send it out. And this is uh, only a virus which can infect another person. And since um, for RT-PCR, for all molecular probes, even for this um, liquid um, um, point of care tests, which everybody is doing now um, for the uh, quick testing, um, you have completely to destroy the material and no um, replication competent intact virus will survive because it's not um, living, but uh, will be able to uh, get out in its intact way after this extraction procedure. And so as Anthony Fauci told you, you can, your immune system could have got rid of all the virus and there is remaining parts of its nucleic acid and that's what the PCR detects. Even in some cases after months of um, the overcome infection. Okay. so. I, I use, I, I know that this is unscientific speaking, but uh, in order to explain it to a lay person or maybe even to a judge, <clears throat> I do tend to simplify these things. But um, the, whatever you test positive to is just fragments of the sequence that uh, are found in the virus. But it doesn't mean that you are now contagious. I know that Mike Eden distinguishes between hot and cold infections. He says a cold infection is what you just described. It may be the leftovers, the remnants of your body's immune system's fight against the common flu or something. A hot infection, this is when you find the virus, a sequence of the virus, and it is still, and it is capable of replicating. That's when you're contagious, but that's also when you have symptoms, right? So, so normally, yes, you have the symptoms. Um, you can either detect um, the intermediate RNA, as those group from Munich did with the with replication RNA detection. But the only proof is the isolation of the virus and the growth and cell culture, or an experiment where you have a non-infected person bring this person together with a presumably infected person and the other person under controlled conditions um, got the infection. But by molecular probes, you only can do a correlation. So if you have very high RNA loads and typical symptoms, then you it's allowed to conclude that this virus might be the cause of the symptoms. So if you now think about the new pandemic, which is announced 
um, in all countries, the monkeypox. Um, then you have in the beginning um, the unspecific symptoms as well, so headache, fever, muscle pain, and so on. But then you uh, in this, uh, then you get this typical um, um, symptoms on your skin, so the um, pox-like symptoms, and then you have a typical clinical experience, and then. If you do a PCR test or another test and you find high amounts of the nucleic acid of this monkeypox virus uh, in a patient which has a typical pox-like um, uh, clinical symptoms, then you then it's allowed to say, yes, that indeed might be the monkeypox because then it's typical by the clinicians. But a common flu-like symptom, as I showed you, can be everything. And so a PCR, even if you have the symptoms, is not enough to show because, as I've shown you on the first slides from Wuhan, it could also be the influenza. And maybe this patient has a serious influenza with some coronaviruses as um, accompanying addition virus. So to make this very clear, and to get rid of all the confusion. I know I'm oversimplifying, but still, can you, three, um, three uh, follow-up questions. Can you uh, hopefully answer them with just a yes or a no? It doesn't make any sense to mass test, to mass screen asymptomatic people. Is that correct? Exactly correct. Okay. Second question, if someone tests positive, um, with this PCR, uh, PCR test, because it only looks for the, the coronavirus. If someone tests positive with symptoms, um, this does not mean that he, is he or she is infectious in the sense of being contagious, because the PCR test in and of itself, all alone, cannot tell us that. Is that correct? That's in part correct, because if you have a high viral load, as they showed in several publications, so a real high viral load, um, then it's legit to um, do the correlation. But then you have to have really a controlled high viral load and a lot of symptoms, and then you, have, you are contagious. Is that true by itself? Or do you have to do differential diagnostics first? You, you have to do differential diagnostics and the that's what I mean. That's why I'm asking. That's why I'm asking. I need a clear answer because a court of law will not want to be confused. That's why I'm saying if the second question is if you test positive, it doesn't mean that corona is the cause of the infection. Even the CDC says that. But in yes. order, and that's the third question, in order to find out what caused, what really causes the symptoms, you have to do differential diagnostics or, or um, uh, multiplex testing, right? You have to do multiplex testing for viruses and for other pathogens, yes. Okay, thank you. Dr. Kammerer, thank you for uh, your presentation. Um, I'm Anna Garner from the United States, and uh, I don't think I've questioned you before. But, you know, in the government's uh, description and numbers that they put out of cases, they never define a case. 
And that's for a very good reason, of course, because it, it can include many, many healthy people and people that we don't need to be afraid of. But it seems to me that the government also is capable of manipulating those numbers that they're using to promote fear in everyone. And one of those ways then it sounds like is mass testing uh, the population, including healthy people. Is that correct? Well, you can, let's say, play with the numbers in mass testing, depending on the PCR you use and depending on the um, conditions under which you perform the PCR. So um, that's very easy to manipulate the data. If you need more positive data, you can say uh, the lab will accept only one gene if the kit has even three genes as a target. Well, if one gene has more than 35 CT, then accepted as positive. And if you need uh, less cases, then you say, well, everything above a CT of 30, and you need at least two positive genes um, to make this uh, probe positive. Um, so you can easily play with, with these numbers. Yes. And that was going to be my next question. So it's not just the mass testing of the entire population, including healthy people, but you can do it by putting more than one uh, infectious agent in the PCR test itself that it's picking up, uh, and also by raising the cycle thresholds of the testing itself, correct? And the cycle threshold just means the number of times that it is doubled. Is yes. The, that's correct. No, okay. so, and the threshold means not only the number of times of it's doubled, but you define it as, uh, as it said, threshold, where this light signal crosses a line which is higher than um, in a clearly negative sample. So this is uh, specific for every test, but there's normally uh, um, this, let's say, around CT30, which is, is a common uh, signal. Yeah. That there's a threshold. So uh, above what cycle threshold will you get a high percentage of false positives? So for, for sure, um, 35 should be the upper line. Depends a little bit on the kit and on the controls. If you have proper controls, I've shown you that um, you have 10 to the six copies in the samples, which correlates really with a positive um, or with, with a highly likely infected person, let's say it like this. So normally in a good PCR, you have a calibration curve with you so that you see that 10 to the 8, 10 to the 7, 10 to the 6, 10 to the 5. So a dilution series of a well defined target. And then you see the target of this, um, let's say, um, 10 to the 6 as, as a goal line crosses the CT at 28. Then everything above 28 is nonsense. Maybe another kit with another target using the same um, dilution line has a CT of 30. Then this lab has to say 30 is my uh, line between positive and negative. But in no case, it should be above 35. Then there are something is not correct with the PCR. Are you familiar with the uh, cycle thresholds used 
in the United States being primarily of 40 and above? It's, it's still in yesterday I've asked several uh, MDs and they still get lab informations positive one gene ZD40 still. What so, is the ZD40 gene? No, the, uh, um, cycle threshold of 40 mm -hmm. for only one target, which is oh. a, a no-go PCR testing, but still they use it here in Germany in several labs. And so it might be the same in the United States. So with a CT of 40 and only one gene, so is, I think Anthony Fauci has said everything. It's just rubbish. Correct, correct. And they knew it was rubbish when they put it out. That's Fauci, Drosten, and Corman knew that it was rubbish when they put it out. Thank you. Ulrike, this, uh, so in the, in the, the, the Corman Drosten paper uh, and also the, um, the test protocol that was published at the VH, uh, uh, WHO, they, they even, I think, pointed to a threshold of like 45 or so, wasn't it? What was no, they didn't define the threshold. That is a problem. Well, it is allowed to do a PCR up to 45 cycles. This is rubbish, but this does not define a yes or no decision. So yes, on, so you can even do it up to 60 cycles in the machine. This doesn't make sense because some, uh, then the enzymes and all the ingredients are um, uh, uh, no longer working. But um, if you do a, a PCR up to a CT of 45, you have to define a threshold. And so normally you have this, um, it's called sigmoid curve. And then you have this um, CT, even if you go up to 45, the CT should be lower than 30 or at least 35. And they definitely did not define it. And that's a problem. And they accepted uh, it up to, I think there was, uh, labs in the beginning, which accepted it up to 42, which is completely nonsense and against every basic rules of uh, quantitative PCR. There is guidelines and good laboratory practice guidelines, and um, they did not define their PCR according to this worldwide accepted scientific guidelines. That's a problem. And they should know it because PCR is not nothing special it's a common molecular method in every lab for more than 30 years especially in research and in forensic science and crime scenes can i can i ask two questions with reference to a publication of the cdc um, here are the two questions. The CDC itself says that, um, and this is in a um, publication um, uh, dated July 13th, 2020, it's on, on page 38. There's, there are a number of bullet points, but the two most important ones are these. First one, um, I quote directly, detection of viral RNA may not indicate the presence of infectious virus or that 2019 NCOV is the causative agent for clinical symptoms. Again, detection of viral RNA may not indicate the presence of infectious virus or that 2019 NCOV is the causative agent for clinical symptoms. symptoms. 
Um, in my mind, in my view, this means if you test positive because the test found fragments of the coronavirus or the sequences, it doesn't mean that this is what caused the symptoms. So you, do, you test positive and even the CDC says it doesn't mean that that is what caused the symptoms. And the other thing yes. that it says is you need to have symptoms. If you don't have any symptoms, then it's completely useless. Is that correct in your view? Yeah, it's, it's, this is exactly the point, because on one hand, you can have several um, um, uh, agents which induce the symptoms. So as I have shown you different mm -hmm. viruses and so on. And um, due to the basic technology of the PCR, you never can say this is a replication competent virus. And everybody knew it. The CDC knew it, the NIH knew it. Everybody working with this technique knew it and they have written it down and the RKI knew it and everybody and every institution knew it, but they, for me, willingly did not express it to the public and to the government. That That's a very problem. important. That is very important. It also, uh, from a legal standpoint, it is extremely important because it shows us that it is indeed willful infliction of damage, damage because they, of course, they knew that uh, based on the findings of the PCR test, they would have all these measures, including the so-called vaccinations. But here's the second bullet point. Uh, it's sort of the same thing over again, but phrased a little bit differently. This test cannot rule out diseases caused by other bacterial or viral, viral pathogens. Again, this means that in order to find out what really caused the symptoms, and again, you need symptoms, you have to do differential diagnostics or yeah. multiplex testing. So yeah. again, it doesn't make any sense to do mass screening of asymptomatic people because these people are presumably healthy. Is that correct? Yes, and funnily, there was, there was a testing on healthy tourists in New York several years ago, which is published. And they randomly found all the viruses um, in those, those healthy tourists visiting a tourist point uh, in New York. So um, this makes absolutely no sense. And not only the CDC, but also the Singapore um, uh, NIH and the um, official government um, um, health laboratory in Switzerland, they all gave out this official rules for PCR testing early in 2020. So it's officially published by governmental or nearly governmental institutions very early in this pandemic situation. Well, thank you very much. I don't, I have no further questions. This is completely in line what we've heard from other experts like Dr. Mike Eaton and Dr. Roger Hodkinson. Uh, it's very clear to me now. Um, uh, uh, Virginie, I didn't mean to cut you off. Uh, thank you, Raina. It's, um, I follow your questions, your last questions, because Professor Kamerer, thank you for, for your testimony. Um, for me, there's a, the, the, point, the new point is uh, that there is dual viral infections uh, and that uh, when patients uh, had COVID-19 and uh, influenza B positive, there were more disease outcomes, you say, 
And for me, it's really um, a first because in France they say that uh, the common flu disappeared during the health crisis. So now <laughs> I discovered that, and uh, and as said right now, uh, it demonstrates very well that it's a, a false narrative and that uh, they are, were looking for um, parts of the COVID-19, but that patients were probably uh, um, sick from also other other um through or, or so on and it's a question of the treatments a lot of people could have been treated when they were sick and uh, so um, um it's really different from what uh, health agencies uh, national agencies are say to people uh I don't know if it, if it was the case in other countries, but uh, in France it was the case. They really said that the common flu has disappeared, and it's, uh, <laughs> it's awful to discover that they were uh, proof yeah. that it was not the case. No, this is a problem. The flu is none of those other viruses disappeared, but. As I tried to express, so all the years before 20, in the winter season, every serious disease was labeled influenza, flu, and not tested. And even there could have been some coronavirus infections with other coronaviruses or other viruses. And all mild diseases were labeled common cold. So, and since everybody tested SARS-CoV-2 only, then nobody tested for influenza, for all the other things. And so it was not um, that the PCR now detects the false the influenza virus, but it detects correctly the SARS-CoV-2 coronavirus. But um, often it's a double infection or a false positive signal in a person who originally has the flu infection. And even triple infections are possible. This three viruses, they are published. And often the very serious diseases, despite of those day eight disease, with Dr. Chetty um, nicely explained with this allergic reaction, but often those um, serious causes of disease, they had either bacterial pneumonia in addition, which then lead antibiotics treatment. And a lot of patients who died, died on mucosal infections of the lung, which were overseen because everybody treated them or um, um, uh, labeled them as COVID patients. And in the end, they died on aspergillus, which could have been treated by antimycotic uh, um, drugs, which were not used because it was a COVID patient. That's a problem of if you label everybody who has some symptoms, fever, headache, and so on, and pneumonia as COVID, 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 then you, the clinicians oversee all the other aspects. Yes. So it's a really test pandemic only. <laughs> okay, thank you, Professor. Would you, one more question. Um, I'm sorry, Dupali. Um, one more question. 
is it is it correct to say that if you use a test that only looks for the coronavirus then the only thing you're going to find is the coronavirus and nothing else and is it also correct to say that that is a mistake in diagnostics well normally i uh, i'm as a biologist cannot rule in the in the medical treatment but normally um, there's no difference in treating viral pneumonia diseases or respiratory diseases because there's no specific treatment so far and so it this differential diagnosis only makes sense to say if it's a virus or if it's a bacterium or is it um, uh, um, um, fungus or if it is an um, um, uh, amoebia or something like this chlamydia infections um, because then between the different groups of pathogens then you have different uh, treating protocols and this viruses there's um, some very few viruses but they do different symptoms like the herpes viruses therefore you have um, uh, common drugs but normally if you have a patient which has a clear viral respiratory infection, uh, which is a mild disease, then you have the normal stay at home, do not make sports, go into the bed, um, um, treat you like, like your grandmother treated you, and wait and see. And if you have a pneumonia, then they do a normal treatment independent of the virus which induces this. So this... Um, excessive testing does not make sense despite you want to create a special situation in in my opinion could i just add something to so this so sorry if, like in germany we had this um this laboratory testing the instant um ring versuch uh, and robin test yeah, yeah. and um so there they Trial. tested um also with like a basically just a water probe and like probes with other uh, coronaviruses like harmless coronaviruses um, inserted just to see how um, efficient this test was and then it turned out that i don't know i think for the water i think uh, 1.6 percent turned out positive like seemingly showing the harmful coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2. And then um, you had um, the, uh, like for instance, I think on a harmless coronavirus, you had like a 7.6% positive rate. So, I mean, that shows that in addition to the people maybe not having uh, SARS-CoV-2 at all, they the, the, the seemingly very accurate um, test would then also in addition test positive to other harmless coronaviruses, which like adds to the confusion. Uh, well, but one important point, those other coronaviruses are not harmless. You can die on them as well. And uh, you can even die on, on normal rhinoviruses. So that depends only on your immune system and your, your uh, specific condition. So um, the, um, there is viruses which make more persons ill and are more aggressive and others not, but um, so um, the normal coronaviruses can harm as well. But um, this is a matter of contamination and of cross-reactivity. So this is on one point the design of the PCR, if it's cross-reactive, but the most 
uh, source of false positive results is uh, so-called handling procedure in the lab. The mass testing produces a lot of uh, PCRs and PCR, as I told you, is very, very, very sensitive. And it's a nightmare in a lab if you have a contamination with the end products of the PCR. And there was films, for example, from uh, this very large British automated testing labs where they, um, the, the, the roboters which um, handled the, the swaps did not properly handle them and then had swaps which were um, uh, scratched over 100 samples. And if this is a very high load, tighter positive swap, then you contaminate all the other ones and then you have a lot of positive samples. This is very well documented in all countries that from time to time the lab have very high rates of false positive just by contamination during the handling or during the um, chemical components they used. Um, and even very in the beginning, they found contamination. So pre-prepared positive PCR tests directly from the company, which was not intended to produce a test positive, but it was by this mass producing under not very good conditions. And then it was, everything was contaminated. And then they had, this was a publication from the Loeffler Institute. So even a very um, um, official institute here in Germany that they found the contaminations, even in the starting sets. Um, and this made all the water samples positive. So this is the most important point that not the other viruses cross-react with a good PCR, but that the PCR detects contaminations. So Dipali, would you like to ask your question? Yes. Uh, thank you, Dr. Kamerer, uh, for uh, letting us know about the limitations of PCR tests. I'm advocate Dipali Ojha from India. Uh, doctor, would you let us know uh, what is the difference between rapid antigen test and the PCR? The reason is in India, we had, there was a time when the government and the health authorities gave the liberty to people to use uh, uh, rapid antigen tests, wherein the results came in very fast, like maybe on the second, next day, within 24 hours, and it was easier for people to continue their activities when the lockdowns were lifted. They could travel to places, intra-city and intra-districts. However, at one point, there was a rule within, within uh, you know, um, using this rapid antigen test. It said that if a rapid antigen test comes out to be positive, one could go in for PCR test. And the result of PCR test would prevail over that of art, uh, rapid antigen test. So could you uh, please share your views on how appropriate or otherwise is this approach? This is the same in Germany and all over. So uh, this rapid antigen, the antigen is a protein. So the virus has a nucleic acid inside and then it has a protein corner. So spike protein, for example, and then the proteins covering the nucleic acids, the um, uh, nuclear proteins. And um, parts of those proteins are called antigens. And so the rapid antigen test detects protein parts of the virus. 
So um, you have this, um, this lateral flow system, this, this plastic cassettes where you drop in your sample and then you have um, antibodies in this chamber, which then binds the protein of the virus if there is one protein. And this then gives this um, color reaction on uh, the uh, test um, area. And um, so the antigen, the fast antigen test detects protein. It's from the publications here, a little bit more specific because you need a higher load of protein to get this test positive. And if this antigen test is truly positive because there's a lot of problems with this test. If you have an acid um, like drinking cola or orange juice or something like this, this antigen tests will give a positive result. Um, so, and if, as a confirmation test, then they um, ask for the PCR. And normally, if you have symptoms, then the antigen test can be positive, and then the PCR is positive as well. But if you have a wrong positive antigen test, our school children here know it very well if they don't want to go to school say add some um, um, uh, food juice on it and then it is a positive test and then they can go home. So, um, and then you have to go to the PCR. But normally the antigen test, it's like a pregnancy test. It's the same system. So, um, and it's much faster. Normally it's positive only in cases where you have viral load at higher rates so normally you have symptoms and then you don't need it normally so but so this procedure is um yeah it's the same all over and normally you have a well established and proven antigen test is a very good thing but the problem is there are thousands of different non-certified, non-tested, non-specific of those lateral flow tests on the market. And then there are batches where nearly every test is positive, independent of what viruses you have. And then there's other um, samples which produce very well reliable pro uh, products. So, it, but it doesn't make sense as well because it and lateral flow test also can't prove a replication competent virus because it shows you there is protein of the virus but like with the pcr the protein can be a piece of a former virus which was destroyed by your immune system so it's the same problem no um uh, this lateral flow test as well as the PCR can both cannot show you a replication competent infectious virus. It's only indicative that there might be the virus in you if you have symptoms. Okay, mm -hmm. thank you. I have one small uh, follow up question. Can I ask? Uh, in India, we uh, uh, for most of the time during last two years, we had the strategy adopted by the health agencies, which said three T's, which is test, trace, and treat, wherein 
if they came across somebody who tested positive they were tracing several contacts like all people who had come in contact with this person who tested positive maybe last four days five days so uh, my question here is um, it's very likely that it's not possible to include all the contacts some could be uh, inadvertently forgotten or missed out so how effective or otherwise is this strategy which is still being used at times typically when they show rise in the cases they would then come up with an order administrative order that this is the strategy which would be deployed and they would just uh, have a increase in the testing so do you think this is effective strategy of tracing the contacts well normally you should ask this an epidemiologist epidemiologist but this doesn't make sense as well because um so um you have from person to person the same problems and as i have shown from the publication from wuhan this is pcr positive asymptomatic persons there was in no case a transmission of the virus to even to to very related persons in the same household and um, this contact tracing um, is well it's it's a matter to um yeah how to how to say it in a polite way um to to um terrorize the persons that's it in my opinion because it it makes no sense so um it's it's the idea behind is that there is a deadly virus going around which uh, can transfer it from one person to the other person without knowing it but since we now know that you have to have symptoms and if you just ask the persons do you have symptoms okay so who was the persons which was around you when you had the symptoms okay then please inform them that they stay at home that would be the proper procedure to to um, handle all the situation yes and while we talked about asymptomatic transmission that it is just a you know some kind of a fraudulent concept you know some kind of an eyewash it struck my mind when the lockdown was lifted for the first time in late 2020 in india and people were tested with a thermal gun while they wished to enter malls or public places and i wondered that if according to them there is asymptomatic transmission which means a person could be positive but doesn't show symptoms he doesn't have fever so how is uh, this kind of a testing by a temperature gun would would the people know whether an asymptomatic person is being allowed an entry so i think that was the point when where you know it was uh, kind of exposed as to there must not be anything like asymptomatic transmission because um otherwise they would have had some kind of a strategy to you know uh, uh, check the asymptomatic transmission which was not possible so they their own rules exposed uh, you know the inadequacies yeah i guess yeah. thank you so much thank you for your response thank you so much for your evidence uh, professor mm -hmm. professor i've got a few questions for you um i've actually looked at uh, during our uh, or, or when you actually presented your evidence first time around you have focused a lot on uh, Wuhan I've looked at the evidence that you've presented today as well also and once more you've looked at uh, Wuhan 
So to me, it seems like, is it correct for me to say, in order for one to understand SARS-CoV-2, the virus, we're going to have to go and look at Wuhan, specifically as well also that we are now talking about 10 million people that were tested uh, and the study of which you have made reference to itself, that ultimately, without the share of the doubt, confirmed that uh, there is no asymptomatic transmissions. So the question that I want to pose to you is that um, when it comes now to, uh, to, to Wuhan, and, it's, and, and even in your evidence, and I quickly just want to make uh, take you to your evidence. Just give me one second. Let me quickly just get it. I just want to get to your evidence. Yes. Okay. Let me just quickly get to your evidence. Yeah, yes. It. So uh, in your evidence, your previous evidence, um, you have made the following uh, statement, and that's basically your evidence. You have stated if you compare this timeline, mm -hmm. this is basically Wuhan and actually what the CDC and the World Health Organization are doing. If you compare this timeline to a presentation from the Ch uh, Chinese CDC mm -hmm. in Wuhan, you can see that they identified the first complete genome of new virus as early as January the 3rd. They mentioned that the specific RT-PCR was developed on January the 4th. On January the 11th, you notice that they have a commercial RT-PCR detection kit, which is distributed to Hubei province, yeah. of which Wuhan is the capital. So I would like you to um, explain what I have just read to you, and that's basically your evidence. And specifically, when you talk about that they had already their own PCR kit, and uh, trying to figure out as to why Drosten came with his own PCR kit itself. Um, so I would like you to explain the Wuhan PCR kit so that one can get to understand as to how really different it is to the common Drosten, basically the Drosten PCR uh, test, test kit. So the, the, the only difference is they had other target sequences and uh, um, more um, sticking to the rules design of the primers. So, and they had the advantage, they had the positive patients, they could prove the specific um, testing with patients. This is what the Europeans and even the American CDC did not have in the beginning because they tested with unspecific samples from other viruses. So to compare, exactly the primers then this i can't do this um, um in parallel to this um speaking here then we have to do it on on a written uh, testimonial because this is just about the target genes and the uh, design of the primers um so and there's so from the beginning on and they um, um had their PCR protocol from China, from Wuhan, 
uh, transferred to that to the WHO, but it was not published before the Drosten PCR was published. So what I would like to find out from you, and I'm going to read from exactly the same document that Rainer read, that is the CDC document, but I'm going to make uh, reference to the paragraph that is on uh, page uh, 40, and uh, effective uh, 07-21-2021. And I'm going to read, and it reads as follows, the analytical sensitivity of the R, small letter R, capital letter R, PCR, assays contained in the CDC 2019 novel coronavirus, 2019 NCOV, real-time RT-PCR diagnostic panel were determined in limit of detection studies. Since no quantified virus isolates of the 2019 NCOV were available for CDC use at the time the test was developed. Yeah. And this study conducted assays designs for detection for the 2019 NCOV and RNA were tested with characteristic stocks of in vitro transcribed full-length RNA, NGene, GenBank session, MN9089472 of known tether RNA copies uh, spiked into a durient consisting of a suspension of human A549 cells in viral transport medium, uh, VTM, to mimic clinical specimen. Your evidence that you've given and the statement that I've actually also read is that on the 11th of January, Wuhan already had a PCR test kit. Here we have the CDC, and uh, they say, you know what, no, we don't have any, basically, a genome itself. But however, we're going to have to actually come up with a test. And in order for us then to come up with a test, we are going to make use of the biotranscribed full-length RNA, engine, GenBank, accession, and so forth and so forth. Um, what is wrong with this uh, <laughs> approach, Professor? So, so the problem is that, let's say, every, every institution, every country created its own test. So since the virus started in Wuhan, which is a story now, um, the Chinese scientists had the, were the first who had access to patients and to the original virus. So they could um isolate the virus create the pcr do the sequencing and everything um, then they um, uh, transferred the knowledge about the nucleic acid sequence into the international sequencing um, databases and if you create a pcr you don't need to have the um, organism you want to detect you only need the information about the nucleic acid target you are searching for. So as soon as it was in the gene bank or in GISAID, in this um, um, international data banks for, for genetic information, everybody could use it to create those primers for the PCR. 
But the disadvantage of the Europeans and of the Americans was they could create the PCR, but did not have the positive control because they did not have patients at those time and did not have the correctly isolated virus. And therefore the trick they made is nowadays you can create nucleic acids if you type in or the computer types the sequence in a machine and then it creates a nucleic acid for you according to the map um, building map you've given by the sequence in this case the sequence that chinese um, scientists obtained from the virus from the patients was in the database and then the american cdc used this computer sequence which was based on the original virus to create its own nucleic acid which then served this is a so-called this uh, phrase in vitro transcribed and this then served for them as a positive control this is not a good idea uh, because normally you need the real positive control, so an infected, clearly infected sample, or even a cell culture which contains the original virus to um, start your proof of uh, the specificity of the PCR. Okay. But therefore, so they one, could do it. Okay. Can one then say that in the absence of your positive controls, although, yes, you've got the sequence on the, uh, the data bank, uh, that's available to each and every laboratory in the world. Yeah. However, um, in order for you to say, but this PCR test can be used successfully, um, you cannot actually make that statement in the absence of the positive controls. Yeah, no, you need you need definitely the positive control. What also scientists could have done, they could have sent their primer sequences to the labs in China, ask them, could you use our primer sequences to perform a PCR with your positive controls and tell us if it's working properly. And then we can use it in case the first patients arrive in our country. So, okay, but they've been provided if they've actually uh, done it. If they've done it, if they've seen it to China, Okay. Yeah. It's, it's, no, they could. So, so you you should not have to transfer um, material. You only transfer the information, and then the Chinese could have cre created the primers directly based on the sequences from from the Charité, from the um, American CDC, and everything, and tested on their samples. But this was this was not the international um, wanted interaction. So therefore, everybody created its own PCR uh, and waited for for the first samples. And um, but normally they only could have asked their Chinese colleagues, "Your PCR is working. Give me the sequence for your primers. I create the primers here with, according to your sequence, and then I have the same PCRs that you use, and then I know." It's proven by the specific positive controls and it should work properly. Okay, so I would like us quickly to go to SARS-CoV-1 and I would like you to tell us um, what did they use in order to uh, diagnose SARS-CoV-1? 
do they use the PCR test to diagnose SARS-CoV-1? Uh, in, in the beginning, I, I think so, yes, because SARS-CoV-1 was 2003. Yes, I, I, I don't know exactly the, the history of, of the original SARS, but um, normally um, they had the patients with this um, viral pneumonia, then they isolated the virus and then they, they created the molecular test because that's a, the normal way since the PCR is, is known. But okay. if you need it exactly, then I have to check it in the literature. Okay, no, that's fine. Uh, no further questions in for me. Thank you so much, Professor. I have, I have a question. Um, just to drive home the point that PCR testing is crucial for this entire pandemic, just to drive home the point that even Drosden admitted that without PCR testing, we wouldn't even have known about a corona crisis. Here's a, 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 a brand new report from the New York Times. It says that CDC advisors recommend vaccine boosters to five to 10 year olds. This is all based on PCR testing because all of the measures are based on this. Two questions, keep this in mind, please. Two questions. If Drosten or Fauci came to your office, to your lab and said, look, I have this test result, this positive test result from someone who doesn't have any symptoms. Therefore, he must have COVID. He must be infectious. What would you tell him? Go back to med school or would you say, oh yeah, I can confirm this. You're muted. No, yeah, normally, normally I would say, give me, give me the sample and I do my own PCR and show if it's true or not. So that, that's, that was a starting point for me in this story because we had, we wanted to do a PCR on pregnant women with COVID. And I uh, tried to just to, to use the common Rosten primers because that's simple. If somebody has published anything, mm -hmm. then you have not to create it from, for your own. And then we have seen that this PCR is um, not good and we had to create our own. So this was a starting point to check that the okay. WHO protocol is so fraudulent. Okay. So now I would- Second question. <laughs> yeah, go ahead, go ahead. No, I, I, I think I think you sh I think you should you should not um, trust um, this if it's not a really a valid test system uh, before you have proven it by yourself as a scientist. Well, the hy hypothesis in in this question is a person tests positive doesn't have any symptoms. Johnson and Fauci asked you, can you confirm that this person has corona, is infected with COVID-19? And the question is, would you tell them to go back to med school or would you tell them, yes, I agree, your patient probably has uh, suffers from COVID-19, is infected with COVID-19. And I gather that you would not confirm this. You, you can't confirm it because COVID-19 okay. is question. a disease. A disease okay. you can't you can't judge on a disease by a molecular test only in the lab. Okay. 
Second, second question, what if Drosten or Fauci came to your lab with a positive test result of someone who also has symptoms? What would you tell them? This is not enough, you need to do more? Is that the answer you would give them? Uh, are the symptoms something specific which point out to exactly this pathogen? If not, then do multiple tests, also multiplex testing. Mm -hmm. So the decision, the, on it, sorry, the decision on a disease should always be in the hand of the medical doctors and not, not on the lab. The lab only should be a help instrument for the MDs who decide on a symptom and not the other way like it is now. That's, that's a crucial point. Yeah. All the clinicians did not do what they should. They did not do the diagnostics on clinical parameters. They only stick to a molecular test. And that is not the correct way. Okay, so if, does anyone have any further questions? I see Deepali. Lee. No. Yes. Yes, uh, Dr. Cameron, I have one question. Uh, that, that question is always, it boggles my mind. Uh, can uh, the PCR test differentiate between variants? For example, can it be PCR test positive with Delta variant, PCR test positive with Omicron variant? Because the answer to this might help me uh, search an answer as to how the media reports the number of cases of Delta variant, number of cases for Omicron variant. Could you please uh, let us know? Um, that depends on this set design. So if you know the whole sequence of the different variants, you can uh, create your PCR primers in a way that they only um, bind to the sequences of the special variant or even not so that they detect Omicron, but not Delta. So this is a little bit tricky and in some cases it works, but it always needs a confirmation by sequencing so that you are sure that your PCR really detected this variant and nothing else. But if there is um, distinct differences which allow me to create a primer pair which is specific for this subvariant, then it's possible. Yes. Something in addition. So, do you think that, like, when this new variant popped up, do you think that the old tests were immediately withdrawn, or that there was, um, you know, immediately like this adapted to uh, the the PCR kit, like adapted to the Omicron variant, was um, then only sold, or like was there? I mean even when you look at the results where there's still reported um, parallel in parallel, oh, there's um, Delta and Omicron or maybe something new going on. Um, the the um, vast majority of the tests um, are in, uh, have their target regions in an area where there is no mutations. So um, the mutations are only in very specific regions. So the normal targets are uh, in regions which are the same in all the viruses. 
So you detect the whole spectrum, so the group of these viruses, and then you have to do subgenomic um, PCRs. But still, um, there were some PCR kits with the old variants, which do not detect the new variants. And then they, uh, therefore, they have seen that some genes uh, are no longer positive, some targets, and other targets are still positive. And therefore, they noticed there must be a new variant and then sequenced the uh, genome and then um, had to create a new variant-specific PCRs. This is a normal common uh, way of how you do the testing. And therefore, you need normally, if you want to proper testing, more than only one target um, to see if there is anything changing in the viruses. But so the, the fact that it was communicated like so, um, you know, basically at a certain point of time, like only reports about Omicron everywhere that must have turned, I mean, that can like, after all, be just part of what we discussed today, like a propaganda aspect that we're now dealing with a new variant and it's everywhere. Yeah. But well, normally one wave is after the other with this with the normal viruses as well, but nobody even did the subtyping. It's the same as with this mass testing. So normally um, the standard coronaviruses, they have mutations as well, but nobody labels them as subtype one, two, three, and so on. It's, it's the same uh, main group of viruses. So everything is new in this corona situation now, in the so-called. Okay. Does anyone have any additional question? No. If not, then I think we have, I assume, reached the end of today's session and um, yeah there will be another session um, coming up soon and we'll keep um, the audience posted when that's going to be and um, I would like to thank everyone participating today like Ulrike Kemmerer and the two other experts and the international group of lawyers and then I would say um, for everyone, have a nice night or morning or day, wherever you are. And then we'll see you for the day eight um, soon. I think uh, Vivian uh, Japsrui has some concluding words to say okay. with respect to what happens next. Then You're muted. Jajrui. Yes, the, the final session will be postponed. Now we can hear you. To, to be informed date uh, in the upcoming two weeks, including the final arguments from the lawyers and the, the vote from the public. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay. So we will then uh, hear within the next couple of days when this, probably within the next 14 days or so, when this uh, final concluding session will um, be scheduled. That is when we will give our um, closing arguments and afterwards there will be uh, voting by the jury. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you, Thank Judge you. Rui. Thank you, Virginie. Thank you, Dipali. Thank, Thank you, you, Anna. Thank you, Dexter. And thank you, Vivian. Thank, Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very Thanks, much. everyone. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks.
Yeah. See you next Goodbye. time. Goodbye. 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 Mm -hmm.